This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black Talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com to a place where race and social media intersect. The Bring Back Our Girls Twitter campaign, the Black Lives Matter campaign, the I Can't Breathe campaign. They all have one thing in common. They started in the social network portal known as Black Twitter. It's the place on Twitter where young blacks from across the country converge to exchange ideas about community issues and even start social movements. The L.A. Times recently announced the hire of a reporter whose beat includes black Twitter. He'll also report on a variety of other race-centered social media platforms. Dexter Thomas is that reporter, and he joins us now. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. For those who have never heard of black Twitter, uh, how would you describe it? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's that's sort of a difficult question. Um, In terms of how most people describe it, I'd say... uh, the description you gave is, is pretty accurate. Um, people tend to think of it as a fairly unified um, group of people that are talking about certain political issues. But then also, um, you know, there's a lot of memes. Uh, for those who don't know what memes are, it's basically a bunch of inside jokes uh, related to what we call black culture. And, uh, you know, who like similar movies, similar music, similar television shows. And so I'd say that's the general accepted definition of black Twitter. I have to say, I think this is the first time I've ever heard of a newspaper reporter position or a reporter position anywhere that is purely dedicated to uh, any social media. What, what, can you, not to put too fine a point on it, but what, what is the point of your job? 
Another great question. So to get back to, I guess, what is the definition of black Twitter? Um, I think what people talk about when they talk about black Twitter is a very, very narrow version of what black people are doing on Twitter and then what people who are not black are doing on Twitter. And so a lot of my job is to talk about these stories and talk about how complicated this really is. Um, that black Twitter is not a monolithic unified body. Um, and also talk about what other people are talking about online, what people are talking about offline. So really, um, my job more than anything is about uh, communities and showing how those communities interact and working with communities to develop and tell their own stories. And what's your background? How, how did you come to be assigned to this beat? Uh, well, my day job was, uh, kind of is, um, I research Japanese hip-hop. Um, I'm a Ph.D. candidate at Cornell University, and so I was in the East Asian Studies Department and, you know, officially still belong to that. This online community has uh, played a pretty big role in bringing on social change. Um, you know, I mentioned the uh, Bring Our Girls Back and the Black Lives Matter campaign. Are there others that uh, kind of stand out to your mind in terms of gaining traction as a result of these conversations on black Twitter? Uh, well, I mean, if, if we want to talk about, say, Ferguson, um, you know, a lot of the attention that was paid to their... Um, originally was through social media. And actually, I think I was first becoming aware of what was going on because I was in Tokyo when it first happened. Uh, I was watching Vine clips, hmm. actually. Uh, so it was Vine clips linked from Twitter. And so I would say that... Th those are the short uh, six-second videos on Twitter. Yeah, short six-second looping videos, usually of people making jokes or, you know, playing with their cat or something right. like that. And all of a sudden, I was realizing, okay, this has a lot more power for something a little bit more significant. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things you can point to. Um, I had to say black Twitter specifically, but I think you can point to Twitter for a lot of different movements, mm -hmm. I would say. Absolutely. We're also joined now by Meredith Clark. She's an assistant professor of journalism at the University of North Texas, and she recently penned the dissertation to tweet our own cause, a mixed methods study of the online phenomenon, black Twitter. Welcome to you as well. Hello. Thanks for having me. What were your thoughts when the news broke that the L.A. Times uh, was t basically taking a person on board uh, to cover the beat of black Twitter? Uh, well, frankly, I was intrigued. I'm a newspaper journalist by trade, and so to assign someone to this as a specific beat to me indicated a shift in strategy for connecting with online audiences. How so? Um, if you think about the number of people who are represented by black Twitter, so think about the 26% of all African Americans who are online actually use Twitter. Uh, this to me looks like a way to kind of go after that audience, to engage with them, and to capture more authentic narratives about the topics that they're talking about on a daily basis. I know you've been active on black Twitter for some time. How have members of that community expressed uh, or have they expressed any concerns over this announcement? Any at all? Absolutely. With any community, you're going to have diverse and divergent viewpoints. I've seen everything um, from a little bit of fear about being surveyed all the time. Mm. Um, I've 
seen some encouraging words about someone paying attention to what young black people are talking about on social media. I think uh, overall people are cautious about where this is going to go and what implications it has for larger news networks. Dexter, I I assume your response is, look, if you're on social media, somebody's going to be watching what you're doing, right? You got to be you got to be aware of that at all times. Uh, no, not no? So much. I mean, I the the criticism and you know I call it criticism because it's it's warranted. Um, basically, what media and I I hesitate to even say mainstream media because there's been a lot of smaller sites too. Generally, how we interact with Black Twitter is to roll through black Twitter, look for a specific hashtag, copy-paste a couple things, slap, mm-hmm. slap a fancy uh, or a snappy title on it, and then put it out in newsprint for somebody to, to you know check out with their morning coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that. And I've written about that a year and a half before I took this job. Um, the difference here, and I think it's also interesting to compare this, say, to um, actually Meredith's case. I'd be interested to know what the response was to you when you said that you were writing a dissertation on black Twitter because kind of my inclination is that we tend to give a lot more respect to the university whereas uh, you know say what I'm doing now the stuff that I'm producing it is going it starts online and it is going right back online so I'm very I'm very very accessible so I'm not taking things and then running away somewhere to publish it it's going right back into the mix Meredith um, I, I beg to differ a little bit about the receptiveness of the university community. Um, we are often seen as being interlopers and off taking on uh, anthropological experiments, you know, being digital ethnographers without necessarily giving people their proper due. And just, a couple, also- just a couple more seconds left here. Sure. I think it all boils down to transparency, whether I come in and want to interview people or talk to people um, as a researcher or you want to do it as a journalist. People need to know what our motives are and how the material is going to be used. Okay, Dexter Thomas, Meredith Clark, thank you both. And we'll return with more of Take Two in a moment. I don't want to make it sound fancy. And it is. It's just a plain little old house. But it's built good and solid. And it will be ours Walter Lee, it makes a difference to a man when he can walk on floors that belong to him. Where is it? Clyburn Park. Where? 4930 Clyburn Street, Clyburn Park. Clyburn Park? Mama, they don't colored people living in Clyburn Park. Well, there's going to be some now. The Obama administration announced this week new regulations to try and do something more challenging than taking down a Confederate flag to change historic and deliberate patterns of segregation in American neighborhoods. Here's how Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro says the federal government can lead the way to housing integration. Castro put it this way officially in a conference call with reporters. The federal government should never plan for communities. It should plan with them. And uh, we're eager to support local leaders in giving every person an equal chance to access quality housing near good schools, transportation, and jobs, no matter who they are, what they look like, how they worship, or where they're from. The new rules will make federal aid conditional on monitoring of housing patterns for racial bias, publicly reporting those results, and making improvements. 
The Obama administration aims to undo decades of segregated housing policy. In light of the historical echoes in the Confederate flag debate, how hard is integration going to be to achieve? Richard Rothstein is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and a fellow at the UC Berkeley School of Law. Christine Klepper is a veteran advocate fighting housing discrimination in Chicago for more than 40 years. She's executive director of the Housing Choice Partners Organization in Chicago. Rothstein says if you want to see this country's racial history, just take a drive to any urban area in America. Uh, Most people today think that the segregation we have in our major metropolitan areas came about by accident. But in fact, the segregation of our metropolitan areas was created by explicit racially conscious federal policy that was designed to segregate our metropolitan areas. It's not the unintended consequence of other policies. Uh, The two major policies that the federal government followed were first, uh, the public housing program, which began in the 1930s, in which they uh, demolished integrated urban neighborhoods. At that time, uh, urban neighborhoods were integrated because workers had to live close enough to the factories where they worked to be able to walk to work. So they demolished integrated urban neighborhoods and built segregated public housing in their place creating segregation in cities across the country, north, south, east, and west, where segregation had never previously existed. And then secondly, also beginning in the 1930s, the Federal Housing Administration guaranteed bank loans to mass production builders to create suburbs uh, around every metropolitan area. And those federal guarantees were conditioned on a commitment by the developers not to sell any homes to African-Americans. So places like Levittown outside New York, or uh, your listeners are probably familiar with a song that Pete Seeger used to sing about houses on a hillside made of ticky-tacky south of San Francisco. Those were all segregated, white-only developments built with federal guarantees on condition that they be white-only. So the entire country was suburbanized as a white-only suburban noose around central cities, Uh, Whites who were living in public housing at the time were lured out of the public housing into these white-only suburbs. They could buy homes with FHA and VA uh, guarantees and pay monthly charges that were less than the rent they were paying in public housing. Christine Klepper, how does that manifest itself if indeed it does in Chicago? And what has been effective in reversing that formidable uh, federally induced trend? Well, as Richard said, minorities, especially African-Americans in Chicago, as well as across the nation, have been so highly concentrated, isolated, and that's very damaging. Uh, Lots of research has come out recently about the damaging effects of living in toxic neighborhoods, highly distressed neighborhoods, especially for children. We know that cognitive learning is affected. We know even lifespans and health are affected. So we run a program where we work with voucher holders to help them move to opportunity neighborhoods. So opportunity neighborhoods have better schools, lower crime, and they're places where children can reach their full potential. For example, the families that we work with, they're highly motivated to do something better, to to get out of poverty. I think the main motivating factor for families to move is safety. And then good schools. Kids are so often trapped in underperforming schools where they can't compete for jobs when they grow up. So we're hoping that this new rule is going to provide more opportunity 
uh, more choice and the better life outcomes that we're looking for and that families are looking for. Do you see, Richard, that the new federal rules can actually address some of what you were talking about a moment ago? They can, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, it's, it's going to take a lot of muscle and it's going to be controversial. Uh, the programs that Christine was just talking about, for example, are not possible in most places in the country because many suburbs, again, with racially explicit motivation, adopted zoning rules that prohibit the multifamily housing from being built. The cities retain and the, the suburbs retain the right to veto uh, projects that include moderate and low income housing. The federal government is going to have to, in, in enforcing this rule, crack some eggs, and it's not going to be easy. In uh, 1970, the Nixon administration actually tried to do this. Uh, they adopted a uh, policy that middle-class white suburbs, in order to receive federal funding for water projects or sewers or anything that they use federal funds for, were going to have to repeal their exclusionary zoning ordinances, were going to have to accept housing that was public, and they were going to have to accept subsidized low- and moderate-income housing. That was so controversial that the program was canceled. And this new rule that the uh, HUD is uh, adopting is a revival of that policy, but it will be equally controversial. And there's going to have to be a lot of fortitude on the part of the federal government to enforce it. Revisiting a Nixon administration uh, policy scheme, um, that's uh, pretty interesting here. Talk about uh, echoes of history here. But, you know, it sounds to me like it's much easier to create an ordinance to keep people out. It's much more challenging of a policy question to create laws that will bring people in without planning communities, as Secretary Castro said, that we don't want to be actually planning communities like, you know, they do in uh, in Russia or uh, China. Uh, is there something that is actually doable here as far as welcoming people in that could have a tangible effect on segregation? Uh, Christine? Well, actually, yes. I think we have shown that we can make these moves using the voucher program. It doesn't involve zoning or development or any of those things. It's a single individual using a subsidy, renting in the private market from a landlord. And most people don't know about if a voucher holder lives in their neighborhood or not. You know, again, we found through studies looking at the few mobility programs that have existed that they work. We have to work more obviously on the things Richard talks about in terms of zoning and and developments, but we have at least one strategy that we know works, and if we could bring it to scale, um, have more mobility programs around the country, I think we have at least one piece of the puzzle for beginning to impact intergenerational poverty. Planning got us into this, and uh, planning, uh, aggressive planning, in the words of Richard Rothstein, is going to get us out of it. Richard Rothstein is research associate at the Economic Policy Institute and a fellow at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. He's the author of the new report, The Making of Ferguson. And Christine Klepper is executive director of Housing Choice Partners in Chicago. Christine and Richard, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. We need that perfect hair. What exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. You're exactly like a motherfucking cop, man. This is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be 
I want to be a cop. This is the State of Things from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. On September 18, 2000, Rodney Bowman was shot to death in his home in Buncombe County. Five men pleaded guilty to the murder. But in 2011, Robert Wilcoxon and Kenneth Caganera of Asheville were exonerated of the murder by the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission. Both men filed federal lawsuits against Buncombe County and former Sheriff Bobby Medford, as well as several detectives, for mishandling the murder investigation. Yesterday, Wilcoxon and his lawyer settled the lawsuit for an undisclosed sum. Asheville Citizen Times reporter Tanya Maxwell has been writing about the Bowman murder case, and she joins us now. Hello, Tanya. Welcome back. Hi, Frank. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Tell us, uh, Take us back now to September of 2000 and tell us uh, what we know about the murder of Rodney Bowman. Uh, in September 2000, it was a Monday night. There were some folks over at the Bowman residence watching football. Um, Mr. Bowman retired to a bedroom, and uh, uh, at some point late that evening, three men burst into the home. Uh, in, amid the commotion, Mr. Bowman uh, got up, opened up his bedroom door, saw what was going on, slammed his door immediately. Now, uh, of the three men that came into the home, they were uh, masked, masked with bandanas. Two of them were armed. One of them had a shotgun. And one of them, after Bowman closed that bedroom door, shot through the bedroom door, hitting him in the stomach, and he later died. All right. And after the death and the investigation, there were initially two groups of suspects. Can you tell us about them and what police knew about them? Uh, there were two groups of suspects, and for uh, simplicity's sake, I'll refer to them in the same way that the Innocence Commission did. Uh, there was Group A, um, as, as the Innocence Commission called them, and uh, that consisted of three men. And there was Group B, which would eventually consist of six men, um, both Tips came in uh, almost immediately or very shortly after uh, Mr. Bowman was shot to a Crime Stoppers line here in Buncombe County. And uh, one of those, a couple of those calls implicated uh, the Group A set of men and other calls implicated the Group B set of men. So arrests were made. And uh, tell us finally who was arrested and, and five of the men who were arrested pleaded guilty. Tell us about that. Uh, there were uh, eventually six men charged in connection with the Bowman homicide. Uh, well, charges were dropped against one of them. Um, so that left – so of, of these five men, two of them were charged um, or pleaded guilty. They, everyone pled guilty. Two of them pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and received sentences of 15 years. And the other three men received lesser sentences but also related to that homicide. All right. So they, they, they were guilty pleas in this case now. That could be the end of it. But the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission got involved. Tell us about their involvement. Well, they became involved in about uh, – they probably first heard of the case in about 2008. That's when uh, a man named Kenneth Caganera, um, who was one of the men who received the harshest sentence, uh, was uh, started appealing to them. And his big issue um, was that he had never seen DNA evidence. He um, was adamant um, about DNA evidence uh, on the bandanas um, – in 2010, a couple of years later, Robert Wilcoxon also filed his own appeal to the um, Innocence Commission, 
And that commission took up the case, and there was an official hearing in April of 2011. This DNA evidence becomes a really important factor because the police did, in, in fact, find bandanas that contained B- DNA, none of which matched any of the men who were uh, convicted of this crime. Is that right? You know, and more importantly than, than, than that, or just as important, is there was genetic material on uh, at least one of those bandanas that would seem to implicate uh, a, a, a one of the men from Group A who were never charged in this crime. There was a, a rare uh, genetic marker, I believe, that uh, appears... Um, uh, in a very, very small percentage of the African-American population. And one of those suspects, or he was not a suspect, but one of those men also carried that that genetic marker. So police had reason to suspect uh, members of Group A. They dropped them. They then had bandanas that had DNA evidence that would have reconnected them. Whatever happened to those bandanas? They were not turned over to defense attorneys. Um, and there was at some point... Um, now, the, the, our district attorney here in Blanco County at that time, he no longer is, was Ron Moore. Um, and Ron Moore was ordered to resubmit um, some DNA evidence. But defense attorneys say that they never saw that evidence. That illegal parlance, I believe, is the failure to turn over exculpatory evidence. And it's not, it's frowned upon by the court. That would be the 50 cent word. Yes, it is. So what happened? And, and to, so now tell us how this all unfolds. Is this then the bandanas, for instance? Is this part of the evidence that the inquiry, the innocence inquiry, uh, uh, un- uncovers as part of its investigation? You know, I might be wrong about this. I feel like they only take up cases that do involve DNA evidence. Um, But, you know, it certainly is a a very important um, step for them. So, indeed, um, that becomes part of uh, many things that that they are inquiring about. But, in in effect, it was because of their investigation that these, these bandanas finally turned up. Is that right? That is that is exactly right. So if they yes. hadn't done this, we would never have known. What else then did they turn up? What led to ultimately these convictions being overturned? I guess we should point out here the Innocence Commission, this is not like receiving a new trial. This is not like appealing your case. In those cases, when you are granted a new trial on appeal, it's because there's been some misstep in the proceedings, in the legal proceedings. It has nothing to do with the evidence. Uh, even new evidence wouldn't give you a new trial. It means the procedure wasn't followed properly. Do it over. This is different entirely. This means we think there's evidence to show these people are innocent, and that's unique or fairly unique in North Carolina. Uh, so I suppose we should point that out, that the Innocence Commission sort of has this kind of authority. And then my question to you is, what else did they turn up as, as a result of this investigation? You know, there there were several things. Um, one of the interesting things is there was a, a videotape that would um, seem to uh, – that was taken, I believe, at a, a gas station from that evening that would seem to implicate uh, the men from Group A. Uh, that videotape, when it was in the possession of the Buncombe County Sheriff's Department, had in part been taped over, including the most important, uh, what is believed to be the most important portion of that tape, and that was taped over with the soap opera Guiding Light. I believe there's a four-minute segment that... Um, shows a soap opera instead of these potential suspects arriving at this gas station. And as I understand it, that, that four minutes contained a part in which the uh, one of the suspects became unmasked and their face would have been evident. Uh, yes, that absolutely. I mean, there were several missteps, and that is certainly one of them.
All right. So so let's tell us tell us what's happened so far in terms of the Innocence Commission and the settlements that have been received. So, uh, as I said, so the Innocence Commission had its hearing in 2011, and uh, uh, Kenneth Caganera and Robert Wilcoxon won exoneration from the Innocence Commission. Uh, and uh, also, I should say, the Innocence Commission went so far <clears> – <throat> excuse me. They went so far not only to deem that these two gentlemen were innocent of this crime, but then also that the the folks in Group A, they publicly named those men and said that these are the guys who are responsible in the, the Bowman homicide. Um, but after that Innocence Commission hearing, uh, Kenneth Caganera and Robert Wilcoxon both filed suit federally, um, and Kenneth Caganera earlier this year uh, received a f- uh, $515,000 settlement, nearly or a little over half a million dollars mm-hmm. from Buncombe County and um, its insurance. Um, and Robert Wilcoxon, just yesterday, um, it was announced that he also had received a settlement, which we'll be finding about out what that amount is in about a month um, after um, some things have to happen with the Buncombe County commissioners. If these federal lawsuits go through, could they be receive even more money? Uh, the federal no, they the, those gentlemen have both settled, so their cases are done. Um, I, I would have ex- expected had Wilcoxon's case moved forward, we probably would have been looking at a trial that would have been a civil trial in federal court that would have been two to four weeks long. It certainly would have been a long trial, but all of those parties got together and settled. Um, we potentially could be seeing some civil further civil lawsuits from the other three men. Uh, who have served their time, who were also part of Group B. Now, they were not found innocent by the Innocence Commission. Um, However, they have what is called a motion for appropriate relief pending um, in in Superior Court, in Criminal Superior Court. That motion will be heard on July 24th. Um, and uh, a motion for appropriate relief deals with errors in the case. If the judge finds that there were errors in the case, then um, he can overturn those convictions. All right. And just to clarify this, we said the uh, the actual Innocence Commission uh, needs credible evidence of innocence. Verifiable evidence of innocence must exist for them to take it. It's not a requirement that, uh, that it be DNA, but that just clarifies that. I want to talk about the sheriff in this case, Bobby Medford. Uh, he's facing charges himself. Tell us a little bit about him. Oh, Bobby Bobby Medford was sued um, both by Kenneth Caganera and Robert Wilcoxon, among some other people. Uh, Bobby Medford uh, is certainly uh, one of our more infamous characters here in Buncombe County and the mountains. He was the sheriff at the time. He lost an election several years ago and later was uh, himself brought under federal investigation for some corruption-related charges. Now, those charges had nothing to do with uh, criminal cases. They were related to video gaming, um, some money issues, those kinds of things. And he is in federal prison now, serving a 15-year term. Tanya Maxwell, thank you very much for that update. Always good to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thanks much, Frank. Tanya Maxwell is an investigative reporter with the Asheville Citizen Times. She's been writing about the Bowman murder case. We have links to her articles at our website, stateofthings.org. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. 
Tonight, the Lee County Sheriff explains why he just fired one of his employees. Shelly Bechtel was a records assistant linked to a racist drawing on her kitchen wall. So we showed you this video back in May. Shelly's husband, a former baseball coach from North Fort Myers High, seen smashing the drawing with a sledgehammer. The man depicted in the drawing is the current coach, Tavares Gary. Tonight, NBC2's Graham Hunter spoke with Sheriff Mike Scott today about his decision to remove Bechtel. Lisa, that's right. Much of the controversy centered around a noose that was drawn around the neck of a caricature of North Fort Myers high school baseball coach Tavares Gary. The big question was, who drew the noose? Well, in Sheriff Scott's eyes, it doesn't matter. She acknowledges involvement in every single aspect of this, of this event, except the noose. Shelly Bechtel was placed on administrative leave in May over this picture showing North Fort Myers baseball coach Tavares Gary with a noose around his neck. The family says they were frustrated Gary had replaced Bechtel's husband as coach. David Bechtel told me Shelly only drew the face. The noose was added by a friend of their son's. That's the real toxic part of this thing. That friend, a juvenile at the time of the incident, admitted to investigators he did add the rope. The noose is clearly uh, probably the most toxic and corrosive connotation with, with race relations that you can imagine. The internal affairs report is clear. Bechtel did not witness, participate, or condone any alterations to the picture, which could be perceived as being racially motivated. But that wasn't enough for Sheriff Scott. So I said, okay, well, let's take a polygraph and let's test the veracity of that claim and she refused to take the polygraph. The report also says, despite the incident and the video, the allegation of improper conduct by Bechtel was unfounded. But Sheriff Scott says Bechtel's story didn't add up. I find that a little hard to digest, that she was there the entire time that this unfolded, but at no point in time drew or knew of the noose. The Bechtels did not want to comment at this time. I did receive a statement from Tavares Gary. He says, I am happy to see the LCSO does not tolerate that activity within its organization. Racism is a huge problem today, and the people who do it and support it should be removed from public companies, especially in government organizations like the Sheriff's Department. Reporting live in the control room, Graham Hunter, NBC2. White girl, white girl, white girl, white girl, white girl, white girl. A Claremont woman is behind bars, accused of going after a teenager with a baseball bat, yelling racial slurs and threatening to hang his family from her trees. But the suspect's family told Channel 9's Mert Price a completely different story. Mert, they say this has been an ongoing argument, and when they did try to confront the boy, things got out of control. Yeah, that's what they say, but the teens, they tell a different story. They say they were just walking down the street when the argument happened, and that's when they say the suspect came after them with the baseball bat. They say, fortunately, they had their phones, and they rolled on the video, so they were able to give it to deputies so investigators could see what actually happened. After seeing this video, Lake County deputies arrested 29-year-old Lisa Elberson. Right now, she's facing assault with deadly weapon, simple battery, and child abuse charges. Now, investigators say this all stems from an incident that happened yesterday on Gold Star Court in Claremont. That's when deputies got reports that Elberson was chasing a juvenile down the street with a bat. Stop. 
As it was happening, a witness grabbed his phone and started recording the altercation. During the video, you can see Elverson holding the bat and yelling racial slurs, saying the N-word, and even using homophobic slurs, and telling the kid she would hang his family from her tree. Now, it's hard to see it on the video, but later, detectives say she actually spat on one of the teenagers. The suspect's husband gave us his family's version of what happened. Yesterday, I was driving, and he comes at my truck saying some other stuff. So I come back home, and, you know, I tell my wife, you know, that I'm going to go down there and talk to him. He says his wife and son went with him, and the son brought the bat along as well. She grabbed it for my son so he wouldn't hurt the boy. Right, to make sure everything was safe and that all that was going on was the talk. He admits other than using the N-word numerous times, his wife didn't do anything wrong. He really doesn't have nothing on him. He don't have nothing. He, all she has is my wife yelling at her, him, and that's all she did. Once deputies saw the video, they went to the suspect's job and they arrested her. Right now, she's still behind bars. Live in Lake County, Murray Price, Channel 9, Eyewitness News. And when the ladies start tossing their hair back there, that's got to be thought of immediately. Uh oh, here we go. Here's a life changing incident. Everybody involved in here now is going to be, they, they, they are, they're going to be dogged with this incident for the rest of their lives. That's the way to look at it. So, right now with the red shirt, it looks to me in my eye, directly in my eye, that you're next. White woman tossing her hair on some black people and whatnot in a restaurant full of white people and all like that. You think you're going to get the best of that story? Not at all. That's the way you're supposed to be thinking. This is a war situation here, and we are surrounded by enemy. With reinforcements coming. With reinforcements coming. With reinforcements coming. Welcome back to Hannity. A shocking security video appears to show now former Florida State University quarterback punching a woman in the face at a Tallahassee bar. Now, Johnson has been charged with misdemeanor battery, but his attorney says he may have been provoked. Joining us now is his attorney, Jose Bias, and Florida State attorney who's handling the case. William Meggs is with us. Jose, I, I'm looking at the NBC. I, I feel I've known you for a long time. And when you say, well, you know, it wasn't until he was, she struck him twice that he reacted. Um, the woman raised his fist, shouted racial epithets. I, I was a little surprised at those comments. I wanted to see if, if that's what you had really said. Well, you know, certain things get taken out of context. I never said that he was provoked. Uh, I, I do believe the video clearly shows that he was not the initial aggressor, and that's what I said. Uh, he was struck by the woman prior to him uh, striking her. Uh, but I want to be clear. DeAndre has uh, apologized for this entire incident. He believes he should have turned around and walked away. Uh, he is regrettable that this thing has ever happened. And his life has been uh, derailed as a result of it. And he is now uh, owning it. And, and he's volunteering at a, at a battered woman's shelter. Mm -hmm. And he plans on learning from this experience right, and so trying to, to regroup his life. Walk us through the tape, Jose. I've known you a long time. All right, I'm looking at the tape. It's a beginning here. She's hitting him. You could see that. And then he, just, he hit her back. I was raised Correct. you never hit a woman. You're saying that he now recognizes that was a huge mistake on his part. Correct. You know, he, he feels, well, first of all, no one should be touching or hitting another person, period. Right. Uh, whether it's a man or a woman. 
And, you know, we all know 30% of the cases that are, are brought and prosecuted uh, in domestic violence cases are, are, are women who are arrested. So it, it goes both ways. However, uh, no one should be touching another person against their will. And DeAndre is, is completely apologetic about it. Uh, his, his football days are over. Yeah. Uh, he is uh, very uh, disappointed about that. He went through a lot of trouble to try and get to FSU and worked very hard to play football right. there, and, and, his, and, and his, his life is completely uh, derailed as a result of this, and Mr. he knows that, and Mr. he's got to man up to that. Mr. Meggs, let's go to the university president, John Thrasher, uh, the football coach's decision to dismiss the quarterback, DeAndre Johnson. He said, while it's important to adhere to due process, having now seen the physical altercation captured on video, there is no question in my mind that Coach Fisher made the correct decision. Your reaction? Well, I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, uh, the football team has had its share of negative publicity in, in recent months and years, and this certainly does not add to the reputation of uh, what I would call a very great school. All right. What do we do in the case, Jose, where, all right, let's say he did walk away. Um, would she have gotten in trouble for hitting him? Because you could see that she hit him across the face first. Or is there a different standard? And should there be a different standard? Well, well I think that question is better posed for Mr. Meggs. Uh, Mr. You know, Meggs? I, I certainly know they probably... Well, well I, you know, obviously, uh, you know, facts sometimes get in the way of people. Uh, and uh, one of the things we've done is we have, we have gone frame by frame with the victim in this case about what did happen. She was being pushed and elbowed long before she raised her fist. She told him to get off of me. Uh, I was here first. and uh, He definitely was and, holding her before that all started. You're right. So you're saying that his argument that, in fact, what Jose is saying, that it wasn't until she struck him twice that he reacted. You disagree with Jose Bias on that? She did not strike him at all. She swung at him with a pretty weak left. Well, she did, uh, no, she and, did strike him. It's right there on video. I can see it. No, she didn't hit him, you know, she right, missed wait, him. Wait, 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 hang on, right there, watch the left hand of the girl. She's obviously, he's holding her back, as you can see. And then if you watch at this moment, there's the left, yeah, she did hit him. Well. And I'm not, listen, I, I was raised, you never touch a girl. I had three older sisters. Well. It didn't matter what happened. If I raised my hand to my sisters, I was in trouble. Well, you know, the, the, the truth is, is he should have walked away. Agreed, and, and Jose agrees with that. Rather than walking away after he punches a girl in the nose. I, I agree. So what should the charges, what, where are you going to go in terms of the legal aspect of this, Jose? Well, you know, I, I, his life has already been uh, destroyed. Hopefully it's all about picking it up from here on out. I am certain uh, Mr. Meggs and his office has an excellent reputation. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that, uh, you know, ho I'm hoping the worst of this is, is behind us, and we can somehow resolve this case. Uh, and it, for a positive, in, in, to try and turn a negative into a positive, DeAndre is already doing community service. Mm -hmm. He's trying to make amends for, for his actions. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, that uh, and the sacrifices and the losses he's already incurred is enough. Uh, Mr. I don't Meggs, know how let, much let me ask more you, you that can question. be a dead he's, horse. He's lost his college career. He's been released. He's doing community service. Um, does that impress you that, that he's showing contrition and, and a change of heart? Well, you know, all the factors come into play. 
this case has been filed with the court, it will be resolved in one of two ways, either by a plea that is acceptable to the state uh, or by a trial by jury. What would be an acceptable and, plea to you? If Well, we haven't even got to that stage yet. Uh, you know, what we do in these cases is, uh, you know, first off... Well, you're saying if, there will be uh, no charges brought against the woman, only the guy in this case? No, there will be no charges brought against her. Okay, and that you feel he was the aggressor, and even the punch that she threw does is irrelevant to you. Well, it's 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 part of what she did. He was battering her when she threw the punch. Mm. Uh, that that it looked like he was holding her back her hands, him. like he was afraid she was going to hit her. It looks like there might be some history. I don't know if I'm reading into that. Well. Uh, he was holding her left arm That's before right. she raised her right fist. There's yeah. no question about that. No question he was pushing her into the video shows. It that. looked like he was trying uh, to restrain her. I look, I don't, did it, was there a history between these two before this, sir? None that I'm aware of. Okay. All right. Uh, hopefully you no, guys will I, be able I, to resolve this. Jose, you want to add something? No, I just wanted to add that, you know, the, the moment she turns around, she turns around with a fist in the air and... And the only time, De the, the very first time DeAndre touches her is to, is to prevent her uh, from hitting him. And, and you know, we can, we can batter back and forth with, over this, but I, I think what we wanted, the message we want to send, uh, especially to our young adults, is, you know, one, this shouldn't occur, and both parties should learn from it. And, and two, you should try and move on from, from this experience and teach our youth and, and, and hopefully let them grow and, and make this an educational experience for these young adults. And if we can successfully do that, I think it will ultimately solve the problem. You never solve a problem by putting a Band-Aid on it. You, you, you solve it by trying to fix right. it and educate them. All right. It's uh, sad to see stuff like this. i got to tell you, it really is. But uh, hopefully, Jose, you're right. It can be... Uh, some good can come out of a very bad situation. Thank you both. Die, nigga. Say what? Ten niggas died. Yeah, die, nigga. Went down to Whitehall Street. Heard a sergeant reporting lots of niggas dying in Vietnam. Die, nigga. Die, nigga. Nigga, die. Had to get away from niggas dying all the time. Went back up to Harlem. Heard a school teacher say, niggas sure are dumb. Almost like they're dead. Die, nigga, everywhere you go, niggas dying. When writer Tanahasi Coates sat down in our New York studio a few days ago, he became a little emotional. I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> he held his new book for the first time. Between the World and Me is written as a letter to his teenage son, Samari. In it, we glimpse the hard West Baltimore streets where Coates grew up and his curiosity at work on the Howard University campus as he struggles to become a journalist. Today, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Throughout the book, he brings to bear his fears that his life and the lives of his loved ones might end unnaturally. Tanahasi Coates spoke with NPR special correspondent Michelle Norris. So it's an extended letter written for your son, or is this really something that you were writing to yourself? Are you writing to a young Tanahasi at age 15? Um, it is to my son in the sense that everything in this book is things that I've said to my son. This, this is what our conversation actually looks like. I think, you know, more than anything, I was trying to, to answer that question of what it felt like to live under plunder. You know, living in, say, the 18th century, 
you know, in, in the colonies or in, you know, later in, in, in the United States. Folks who really, if they look back, you know, through their ancestry in the past here in the United States would have seen nothing but enslaved black folks. If they look forward another century or so would have seen nothing but enslaved black folks. And yet these folks had to find some way to live. You talk about the black body. Mm-hmm. You, you refer to it again and again, not as an assault on the mind or on a person, but you talk about the black body and maintaining the safety of the black body because of laws and injustices and assaults right. and physical and psychological and, and also institutional. Right. Tell right. me about this term and why you use that. When, when we think about, you know, the myriad evils that spring from racism, that spring from white supremacy, one of the realizations I had while writing this was that ultimately they all are things that endanger the body. And so this has physical impact. And so growing up in my neighborhood in, in West Baltimore, for instance, uh, it was a neighborhood that, you know, uh, which had been subject to housing discrimination. Right. And so you had a group of people who physically could not move, who did not have the same sort of choices that other people did. You had a group of people who did not have the same sort of opportunities that other people did in terms of you know, jobs and education. And so the neighborhood, you know, tended to be a little violent in other neighborhoods, you know, of the same, you know, sort of economic description. So ta the assault on the black body and the fear that comes from that begins with enslavement. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, I, there can be no more physical process than somebody literally, you know, taking your body and, you know, putting it to whatever their selfish usages. You know, unfortunately, it doesn't end there. You know, it proceeds right through uh, Jim Crow, you know, and, and for all the laws, the horrible laws passed during Jim Crow, the you know inability to work where you wanted, the inability to, to vote, the lack of mobility throughout the South. Ultimately, uh, these laws were enforced through violence. Are you trying to get people to think of people of color not in the abstract, but in a very personal way, within a body? Yes, 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 that's exactly it. I, you know, can remember for the first time in my life a few years back, uh, I lived in a neighborhood that was not majority black, that was not, you know, considered a quote-unquote ghetto, quickly moved back, which is where I live now. But I think about how I would walk down the street and how my need to, you know, constantly be on guard, to watch everything was suddenly removed. And I, I can remember physically feeling different. My body felt different. I felt more at ease than I had, you know, in any neighborhood that I had lived in in my life. And that, that was a physical experience. So did you decide to, to raise your son then in a neighborhood that you felt more comfortable in? Or did I hear you say that you went back to a majority? We went back. We lived in that neighborhood for three years. So for And why'd most- you leave? <laughs> I left, you know, I have no other way to say this. I left because I love black people. <laughs> I love living around black people. Home is home. It's a, how do I put this? It's a, it's an unsafety that I am deeply familiar with. Um, but other things come from that. And, you know, that was, that was the other theme in the, in the book. We suffer under racism. We have, you know, physical deprivations that come to us. But beneath that, we form cultures and traditions that, that are beautiful. You also talk about um, within the wonderful you know, the joy in these communities, the laughter, the sometimes laughing to keep from crying, the beautiful mm-hmm. traditions. You also talk about the fear. God, it was everywhere. And it was even in, you know, and I couldn't see this at the time, it was even manifested in uh, shows of, of strength when people were, you know, trying to act like they weren't afraid. For instance, I, and I think we get this so wrong, you know, we look at young black kids and we see them, you know, with, with this scowl on their face, you know, uh, walking a certain way down the block, you know, with their sweatpants, you know, dangling, you know, however, or with their hoodies on. And, and folks think 
that this is like a show of power, a show of, of force, or a show of violence. But I know, because I've been among those kids, that it, it ultimately is fear. You know, the very need to exhibit your power in, in that sort of way is really to ward off other people because you're afraid of what could actually happen to you. Tanahasi Coates, I'd like you to read a portion of the book that speaks to exactly what we've been talking about. It's about halfway through, and you talk about holding your son at night and acknowledging um, a fear as a parent, but a fear that goes back many generations. Could you read that for us? Sure. Now at night I held you in a great fear, wide as all our American generations took me. Now I personally understood my father and the old mantra, either I can beat him or the police. I understood it all, the cable wires, the extension cords, the ritual switch. Black people love their children with a kind of obsession. You are all we have, and you come to us endangered. I think we would like to kill you ourselves before seeing you killed in the streets that America made. That is a philosophy of the disembodied, of a people who control nothing, who can protect nothing, who are made to fear not just the criminals among them, but the police who lord over them with all the moral authority of a protection racket. You you well know that your critics may take your, your anger and disdain at the system as, as a, a kind of hatred of America or a particular disdain for white America or for police. You know, I, I love America the way I love my family. I was born into it. You know, and there's no escape out of it, but no definition of family that I've ever, you know, encountered or dealt with involves never having crosswords with people, never, never having debate, never speaking directly to people. On the contrary, that's the very definition in my house uh, and in the house that I grew up in of what family was. And so folks that can't, you know, tolerate that sort of conversation, um, okay, okay, there's nothing, there's nothing too much I can do about that. Tanahasi Coates, it's been good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. This book is called Between the World and Me. Magnificent, call all the sisters queens. We all on the same team. Blues and pyrus, no colors ain't a thing. A Sudanese model is raising awareness of what it's like to be someone who has dark skin and doesn't have the access to makeup artists who know how to make her up. 
Now, this is Nicole Paul, Paul, and she talks about this quite a bit on her own Instagram page. I'll give you an example of some of the criticism she's put out there. She says, why do I have to bring my own makeup to a professional show when all the other white girls don't have to do anything but show up? Don't try and make me feel bad because I'm blue-black. It's 2015. She continues to say, just because you book a few of us doesn't mean you have the right to make us look ratchet. So... This was an issue that I was completely unaware of because when it comes to makeup artists, you assume that they've gone to school, they're certified, they know what they're getting themselves into, and they need to be prepared for all different skin tones and people from all different backgrounds. But apparently that's not the reality. She has to do her own makeup when she goes on these shoots. Keep in mind that she's a beautiful supermodel who's booking lots of jobs. Let's take a look at some of her pictures. I mean... It's She's beautiful. It, she is beautiful. But here's the reality. I, I don't see a lot of models that look like her. Oh, you don't? Yeah. And I can tell you from firsthand experience of both modeling and on television that as a male, this happens to me. Anytime, I was wondering about yeah, that. Anytime I do shoots, I bring my own foundation and powder um, because unless I, I know ahead of time that the makeup artist is going to be um, African-American or Latino um, or Asian sometimes mm-hmm. – most, and this is not all, most white makeup artists do not how, know how to make up. I go on camera and I'm gray or I'm um, green, and it's just the texturing, and they're using the same thing that they would use on someone with fairer skin on me. And you always have to stop and say, no, 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 that's not my color or whatever the case may be. And a lot of them don't care. It's the same thing sometimes when I go on TV shows and they don't know how to light African Americans. Oh, and, that's terrible. And, but I think what the real issue is is that um, the people who are hiring these makeup artists are not at a place yet where they're saying, listen, diversity is important to us and you mm-hmm. need to make sure that you're able to take care of everyone. So I don't think that there's necessarily malice behind what's going on. No. I just think that there isn't any real consideration. That's it. I don't, I don't think that people really think about it prior to the issue occurring. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there is this prevalence of makeup artists who are like, oh, we don't care about dark-skinned people, and so we're not going to be prepared for them. I just don't think that, A, they're used to working with a lot of people with darker skin, and, B, they just don't expect it, and they're unprepared as a result. I 100% agree with you. When you look at, I can tell you the shoots that I've been on, like I have a doctor's ad right now that's out, and it's four white guys, and then I'm the, like, black friend that's with them, and we're, you know, having a good time. And so when the... the um, Makeup artist came, she came prepared as a white woman to do four white men. And so that's what she's been doing on every shoot that she's been on. You know, when you look at the industry, most of the models Mm -hmm. and the um, television personalities or actors are white. And that's unfortunate because we do see that shows that have or campaigns that have people of color in them do extremely well in comparison to those that just have all white cast members. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. But because it, some, it appeals to a wider audience when you have diversity. Audience. Yeah, and, but again, that's why I said it's, I don't think it's the intent of the makeup artist to do anything shady. I think it's whoever's above them should say, hey, just be prepared. Just be prepared and encourage that. So once you start encouraging that, you're setting a precedent that's going to say, hey, we're get, we can have anybody in here tomorrow. Exactly. You know? it's, it's crazy because as someone who is fair-skinned, I'm white, I, I never 
feel comfortable telling a makeup artist that I don't like something that they've done. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine how difficult it is when a makeup artist is unprepared for someone who has darker skin. And then you have to speak up and let them know, hey, you're actually making me look worse. And then you become difficult. And you become, exactly. Which and is the sucky part. It's a very, and look, as someone who is on television, I know it sounds vain, but you have to look your best. Honestly, your livelihood relies on it in some cases. Completely. And if you don't look your best, we live in a day and age where within five minutes, everyone will tell you on Twitter and social media yeah. that you look a mess. And so it's very important that you take pride in how you look if you're going to be in the public eye. The gay rights movement is changing everything. On the face of it, the recent Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage throughout the U.S. has nothing to do with Nigeria. But that's not how many Nigerians see it. Apparently, the fear is that the ruling will cause Washington to push more aggressively for gay rights in Nigeria. We often check in with Nigerian writer Adobe Trisha Nobani on issues that affect her country. Here's what she told us. People here are scared that, once again, the foreign governments are going to put pressure on countries like Nigeria after the victory has been won in, in America. So it's happened in the past where foreign governments try to intervene and people are scared that America is going to increase the pressure at this time, especially because we have a new government. President Buhari is new. He's being courted by the international community. He was at the G7 meeting a few weeks ago. He was invited, even though Nigeria is not a member of the G7 group. And then the United States has extended an invitation to him again. He's supposed to meet with President Barack Obama at the White House on July 20th. So Nigerians are suspicious that the gay rights agenda is, is uppermost in President Barack Obama's mind. Of course, there is no evidence for that, but that's all part of the paranoia that well, has been birthed from the legalization of same-sex marriage in America. Mm. Adobe, assess for us gay rights right now in Nigeria, and does your country deserve foreign pressure at this point? I could describe the gay people in Nigeria as endangered at present because people have unsheathed their anti-gay sword ready for anyone who's going to tell them that. You know, there's just um, a renewed antagonism towards homosexuality at this time. So I don't know if my country needs the pressure, but I know that what a, whatever should, needs to be done to help to promote the welfare of gay people here, because irrespective of what anybody thinks of their behavior, they shouldn't be stoned to death. They shouldn't be harassed and that sort of thing. And Nigerians were asked about their attitudes toward gay marriage last month by NOI polls. It's a group that works with Gallup polling. And most Nigerians said they thought their country would be better off without gays. How do you read those results? I think it just shows it's just a, a genuine, honest disgust and horror, which is expressed each time the topic is raised. It's frightening when you think of the implications for the gay community in Nigeria. But at the same time, it shows how much conversation needs to be had in that direction as well, because both the, the homophobes and the homosexuals need help. There's still a lot of education that needs to be done. Whatever you think of these people, first of all, they, sh they should have access to health and education, because the same poll said people thought they didn't deserve access to health care, they deserve access to education and other public services. Do you have gay friends in Nigeria? Well, I do know a number of gay people, and I do have gay friends, yes. And probably they can't be very open about being gay. It's not like the United States where people come out openly. Mm. You know people that are allegedly gay, but not many who say, oh, they're openly gay.
each time the issue of homosexuality is discussed in a country like Nigeria, there's so much heat, so much anger, so much accusation and counter-accusation. So we, can't, we haven't actually sat down to discuss these things in, in a way that we can really dissect the issue and understand where these things are coming from. Those attitudes mm-hmm. exist here, too, although you think a couple of decades ago here, many Americans held the same attitudes as Nigerians. But 40 years later, we've got legal gay marriage in this country. What do you think is going to happen in Nigeria in 40 years? I'm not sure I know what's going to happen, but I know what I want to see happen. I want more honest conversation that isn't accusatory. Usually when you have people speaking to the homophobes, it's telling them off for being primitive, telling them off for um, not being up to date with the times and being hate, you know, without appreciating that these people didn't just wake up and decide to hate homosexuals. There is something feeding that attitude. There are genuine beliefs that feed those attitudes. So I'm just saying I wish these conversations could happen outside an atmosphere of hatred and accusation and finger pointing. Both sides need to listen to one another. There's an evolution of thought and ideas that needs to happen. That is what I want to see more of. Nigerian novelist and journalist Adobe Trisha Nobani. She spoke with me from Nigeria's capital, Abuja. I cannot believe that we do not have the heart in this body to do something meaningful, such as take a symbol of hate off these grounds on Friday. Flags in rags. The current controversy over the Confederate battle flag fluttering over the Capitol building in Columbia, South Carolina, is a testament to many things, the least of which is whether it is a symbol of racism. It is a measure of how backward and repressive some areas of the country are, caught in the fractured memory of the past, a past that was, for millions, far more horrific than it was glorious. Anyone who studies American history learns that South Carolina constantly threatened to secede from the Union. Indeed, in the classic work of French political scientist Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America, written several generations before the firing on Fort Sumter, South Carolina threatens to split from the Union. That contrariness, that sense of false, bruised pride, that deep paranoia bred in the bone because of the knowledge of centuries of crimes and cruelties waged against Africans lies in the heart of the state like a stone. Of all the slave-built colonies of the South, none exceeded South Carolina for its huge, teeming black population, which lived in constant terror. That is the heritage of the Confederate battle flag, one of terror and violence in support of a system of organized theft of black labor in the name of white supremacy and black subjugation. Dylan Dumb and Dumber Roof knew instinctively what the flag stood for, as well as the flags of apartheid South Africa and the former Rhodesia. He knew what he was wearing and waving. History has consigned the apartheid flags and Rhodesia's banners to the annals of a history that is past. But in parts of the United States, it flaps in the breeze as if It is still 1860, a symbol of a war against freedom. For far too many people, the war, the civil war, still ain't over. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal.
context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 11th, 2015. So I have been told a compensatory call in. Feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, That number again, 760 Five six nine seven six seven six. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. We are fundraising for the summer of 2015. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Listener supported counter racist radio. Uh, you'll see the PayPal button uh, on my blog. Uh, top right corner Uh, if you can't find it aren't into PayPal uh, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address uh, that way you can support the context of white supremacy I hope the program has been and continues to be worthy of your time and energy Uh, thanks to all of the folks who have invested down through the years who have kept us on the air Uh, I hope the program has been uh, helpful in some way for folks to get a better understanding of what racism is and how it works. Uh, before we get to uh, folks and their commentary, uh, a couple quick things that I noted. Uh, let's see. Uh, I got up 7 a.m. so I could see Serena Williams play. Fantastic. Uh, see black people doing well. Uh, it was very interesting, as always, to see the white people's response to black people dominating and uh, just excelling uh, particularly when they are defeating vanquishing white people in the process it's always uh, fascinating to see the way that they respond to her uh, success Uh, that was one Uh, two um, the incident with DeAndre Johnson I think M1 brought that up one of the programs earlier this week played the segment that you heard from uh, Fox News. I thought that was fascinating. Sean Hannity actually checking <laughs> and say, wait a minute now. The video actually shows that this here white woman, race soldier, struck this black male first. I was a little bit stunned that he uh, stopped the show and, and pointed that out, the veracity of what the video shows. But at any rate, that whole sorry ordeal, uh, it reminded me there's this crazy radio program. And at the end of it, the host, he says something like, uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of racism, right? He says that all the time. And uh, I just thought, wow, that is another great illustration of uh, the horrors that await being in an environment 
with white people and alcohol. I think uh, I have heard it said those are two. That is one of the worst combinations you can have in the universe. White people, alcohol. Oh, man. Bad things are bound to happen, Um, particularly if you are under the influence. I think we just had the incident at University of Virginia with Martise Johnson a few months back. It's just it's a horrible uh, situation uh, to put yourself in. And once again, you have the aggressive white woman. Uh, She is one of their most lethal weapons uh, in the system of white supremacy on display Again, uh, I was going to play the Young Turks did a segment on this episode, as did many other folks. And Anna uh, Kasparian, that's the the white chick that's on. You heard her in the segment that I did play. Surprisingly, she defended and supported DeAndre Johnson's conduct. Uh, She said that the white woman was clearly the aggressor. And they did not point out as much in the Fox segment that the white woman allegedly was making racial slurs and also allegedly need DeAndre Johnson in the groin prior to him striking her. So there were a litany of offenses uh, in addition to her striking him, which you can clearly see on the video. There were a litany of offenses that she is accused of having committed before he struck her in counterbalance. That's what I view it. But they did discuss it. Uh, Sank's character, uh, he was against DeAndre Johnson and saying that, you know, you shouldn't strike a woman. He sounded a lot like Sean Hannity. Uh, Anna Kasparian, she took the position that, no, this white woman was the aggressor. And, you know, maybe you can say he shouldn't hit her or whatever. But no, this white chick was the aggressor. And I can totally understand him going upside her head right on. Uh, she's still on the racist suspect list in a Kasparian. Uh, next, let's see. The segment on black Twitter, because that had just come up last week. Not that I'm interested uh, in talking about, about all of that, but I, I thought it was great because it had just come up. Uh, I had seen uh, earlier in the week that the LA times made this move that they hired uh, a staff writer to specifically cover black Twitter and then everything that they laid out in that report uh, it I, I giggled frequently as I listened to it just even in the report them having to acknowledge how this could be used just to surveil black people and this could be used as just a means of appropriation people go on Twitter Uh, take whatever black people are talking about, make a story, and then they make a book about it or they get to publish and whatever the case may be. I think that was acknowledged uh, in the piece. Uh, What I thought was most revealing was what they did not discuss. In fact, I thought at minimum, at minimum, this would have to be like journalistic sloppiness because this report came out at the beginning of the week. Within seven days of of them doing this report, it was just... Uh, released that Twitter employs fewer than 50 black people. Fewer than 50 black people. This this report came out from the time that we had this discussion, Joy and I, on the cows and this audio segment coming out. So within that seven-day stretch of time, that report came out. Twitter employs less than 50 black people in a company that has approximately 3,000 employees. Right. <laughs> and for them to not acknowledge that at all while they're talking about this at minimum, at minimum, that's 
being extremely, what does Mr. Reed call it, being intellectually lazy? I couldn't even give you that. In my opinion, that's white people practicing racism, white supremacy, where they are purposely distorting information when they talk to you. How can you possibly talk about black Twitter and not bring up the fact that they don't even employ but a teaspoon of melanin in their company? Moving forward. Last thing I wanted to bring up. Nobody was excited, and I totally feel him. You know, maybe this is just for Gus T. Renegade. If anything, it did remind me the importance of writing. If I had written this out before, I would have had an easy blog post that I could have uh, submitted, and it would have had it would have been time stamped. Boom! That I wrote this. I've been saying this for years. Anyone who has been listening to the cows for a while, and if you listen in detail, we have discussed. Uh, Lee Harper's novel, uh, widely considered one of the greatest novels in the history of American literature, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. We've discussed it on the program before. I've played sound clips from the dramatic court scene for people who haven't read the book. It's set in the 1930s. It's told from the perspective of a white child, white female uh, child, scout. Uh, Her white father is an attorney and he takes the case of a black male who, of course, is accused of raping a white woman. Uh, And so that's the big setup for all of this big trial. Of course, the black person is convicted and eventually killed. And her white person, uh, her white, the main character, Scout, her dad is the attorney for this black male, the losing attorney for this black male. Anyway, very popular book. It is widely read in schools colleges i seriously doubt that you could get an english degree in this area of the world and not read to kill a mockingbird uh we've talked about it on the program repeatedly and one of the points that i bring up consistently is atticus finch a racist that is the point that i bring up and i bring it up because he is widely considered one of the greatest hero characters in all of cinema and literature because they made this book into a movie as well Uh, And it's starring Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch for people who are either cinema buffs or if you're older, Gregory Peck is also, I think, probably most well known for playing Superman, which I think just adds even more of the white supremacist element to it all. But uh, we've discussed it before. And I've said, you know, because so many people think that this is the greatest good white person ever. He defends this nigger and does his all and, you know, gets other white people upset with them. Other white people even attack his children because he's defending This nigger. So, of course, he's not a racist. And my counter is what about Calpurnia for people who've read the book? He does have the help element is always there. White people brag about being shiftless. No good parents. They brag about that. They brag about pawning their children off on black people. They memorialize their black mammies. So that element is right in the middle of To Kill a Mockingbird. He even asks her to stay at his house Uh, overnight because, you know, he has to go and guard this nigger that he is defending because white people are coming to lynch him. Uh, Never mind if she has a family or her own children. She has to stay and take care of his little white urchins. Anywho, we talked about this on the program. Justice was reading To Kill a Mockingbird in school this year. Uh, I talked to her about it because I've read it before. I've watched the movie. uh, And I said, said, uh, you could ask, What's a nigger lover? That's one question, because that term is used in the book. I said, that's one question you could ask. I said, the other question you could ask, is Atticus Finch a racist? Now, certainly, I understand you don't want to get anybody in trouble, blah, blah, blah. But I think, in my opinion, those are legit literary questions that could be asked of this book. Anyway, I could point to specific programs where we talked about all this. 
it has been like widely discussed, right? This uh, legendary, likely race soldier, Harper Lee, her book, her sequel uh, is supposed to be coming out sometime soon. They've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. It's supposed to be published on Tuesday. Lo and behold, Atticus Finch is a racist (laughs) and uh, white people are stunned. Like they have uh, several articles uh, on the New York times that came out within the last 24 hours about this or white people are, (laughs) it is hilarious. And it might just be me, my, you know, my warped victim sense of humor, but just, we've talked about, I had to read this book in school. Uh, I've seen it. I have this movie on my hard drive. Uh, I'm very, very familiar. We've talked about it. Like I said, I wish I had written about it, but I have, uh, this, has been the position that I've taken all along and I think it's important because if Atticus Finch is racist well then that pretty much means every white person has got to be racist (laughs) if if even the white people that are willing to go out and get other white people angry with them and will do all of this stuff and this is all fictitious by the way but even the white people that are willing to do that if they're still racist well then We can just try, and that is exactly the point that they have been bringing up in a lot of these articles. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit, and then we'll hit the phone lines again. If you're bored, and this is you know some crazy book that was written a half century ago, I feel you. Um, the one, the only report I will read: racism of Atticus Finch in "Go Set a Watchman" could alter Harper Lee's legacy. <laughs> I just that is astounding to me. Someone who widely considered like this is in the pantheon of literature you'll see to kill a mockingbird like up on it'll be a part of the decoration at like uh borders or or the uh you know really upscale white bookstores that you go to (laughs) they have this up in the rafters anyway so it reads uh with all the debate brewing over the origins of harper lee's novel go set a watchman the biggest bombshell turned out to be an explosive plot twist that no one saw coming Atticus Finch, the crusading lawyer of To Kill a Mockingbird, whose principled fight against racism and inequality inspired generations of readers, is depicted in Watchmen as an aging racist who has attended a Ku Klux Klan meeting, holds negative views about African Americans, and denounces desegregation efforts. Do you want Negroes by the carload in our schools and churches and theaters? Do you want them in our world? Atticus asks his daughter, Jean Louise, the adult scout in The Watchmen. The revelation will probably alter readers' views of Mockingbird, a book beloved that has sold a beloved book that has sold more than 40 million copies globally and has become a staple of high school curriculums. It could also reshape Miss Lee's legacy, which until now has hinged entirely on the outside success of her only novel published 55 years ago. It is also certain to spur debate about the character of Atticus and his moral integrity in Mockingbird, which made him a cultural icon whose influence transcended literature, inspiring generations of lawyers, teachers, and social workers. Whether you've read the novel or seen the film, there's this image you have of Atticus as a hero, and this brings him down a peg, said Adam Bernstein, an English teacher in Queens whose 10th and 11th grade students 
read Mockingbird. How do you take this guy who everybody looked up to for the past 50 plus years and now he's more flawed, he's a more flawed individual? In this version, Atticus is 72 years old, suffering from arthritis and stubbornly resistant to social change. He stands in sharp contrast to the gentle scholar in Mockingbird who tells Scout when explaining why he has gone out on a limb to defend a black man that I do my best to love everybody. In Watchmen, when it comes out Tuesday, Atticus chides Scout for her idealistic views about racial equality. The Negroes down here are still in their childhood as a people. After the initial shock, some writers and literary critics see added value in a more complex and flawed version of Atticus. If Mockingbird sugarcoats racial divisions by depicting a white man as the model for justice in an unjust world, then Watchmen may be like bitter medicine that more accurately reflects the times. If Atticus Finch is not quite the plaster saint that he is in To Kill a Mockingbird, there could be something rich and fascinating about that, said Thomas Mallon, a novelist and critic who had read only the published excerpt from Watchmen. The moral certainties in To Kill a Mockingbird are apparent from the first page, and in that sense, I don't think it's a great novel that deals with the tormenting questions of race in America. But maybe this new one is, if it's more nuanced. Uh, I will stop there. I even thought it was fascinating. They have, because uh, this is a longer uh, review, they go on uh, in the different review, because this was like on the front page of the Washington Post, New York Times, like uh, white people have just been rocked <laughs> by this revelation. Uh, but the Washington Post, they had a different excerpt where Scout and Atticus Finch, they're talking about black people and they're in total agreement. Black people are lazy, childish, stupid, ignorant, impotent, slavish. We only disagree on whether or not they should be treated <laughs> correctly. Like, it's this long list of just horrible attributes. Like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Sloppy, lazy, shiftless, no good. Right, yep, mm -hmm, totally, mm -hmm, every one of them. But that doesn't mean that we should be, you know, lynching them and trying to throw. It is, uh, I have been cracking up. Like I said, nobody else has been enthused about this or even cares. But uh, I did get quite a chuckle, and I wished I had written uh, my views that Atticus Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. Got disconnected. How strange. Anywho, uh, I was winding up. I was done with my Atticus Finch. I said no one has been enthused. I'm the only one that has been mildly interested in all of the, at least in my circle. Uh, but at any rate, uh, if folks have commentary, thoughts they would like to share, lines, uh, we will open them up. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, if you could share one time, uh, and then make sure that you kind of watch how long you're taking so that everybody gets an ample opportunity to voice their views. That would be great. Thank you kindly. And uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Hey, I'll be heard. Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus and Justice, for the program today. Uh, good evening to everyone here today. I am still learning. 
I have concluded that black people problems are white people. White people lie to black people in all areas of people activity. White people are serious about being serious about practicing racism, white supremacy. Our ignorance is lethal to our survival. Black people have to stay out of environments with white people and alcohol. Black people have to practice self-respect and self-respect with each other. Black people have to stay focused on a code of thought, speech, action, and emotional response over and over and over again to replace racism, white supremacy with justice because our lives are in jeopardy. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their correct name. Racism, white supremacy is practiced on us every day, every night, and every minute. No further comment right now. Uh, other folks uh, who are with us, lines should be open. Feel free to chime in. Yes, uh, greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, attached to the uh, the story of the now former uh, Florida State University uh, quarterback uh, is a, another story of, of of another one of his non-white black teammates uh who right now his status is in uh uh indefinite suspension uh somewhat similar situation it 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 gained less publicity uh for some reason but nevertheless the 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 uh the uh player himself is much more high profile than uh than uh the uh the quarterback who was uh, trying to gain a, a starting position uh, that got most publicity. Uh, uh, his name is Davin Cook. And I just found out that the quote-unquote accuser of assault was another white female. Uh, this type of situation is becoming more and more prevalent, I think, because because of the uh, the uh, drama that's being uh, brought up now uh, uh, with uh, black males in sports of uh, being uh, celebrity status, even on the high school level now, uh, they have sports channels and and whatnot that that are even uh, put into a level of of high profile attention to high school high school children uh and also of course uh college level uh kids this kid kid was just 19 years old uh and uh i was looking for the story but i i i, I can't really find it other than i'm pretty sure anybody who would be interested in finding the details of the story just let's look up the name uh uh Demille Cook, uh, Florida State University football player, and then the story would come out. Uh, he was uh, another another bar, uh, nightclub bar type of setting, 
<laughs> like you said, wrong place to be, wrong place to be around a whole lot of people who are drinking uh, uh, alcohol, who are using some sort of means to alter their uh, behavior, and you, you're asking for it. You're asking for a very dangerous environment to be in, and then you come in contact with white people, especially white women. And in turn, uh, uh, apparently, according to the article, a uh, one of the guys of the uh, group uh, was trying to uh, uh, solicit uh, this white female, and in turn, she turned him down. Uh, she was, quote-unquote, cursed out by either uh, – cook or someone within the group and in turn for some kind of way he got involved physically uh you know so that that's where the story is at now but he's under what they call uh indefinite suspension whatever that means <laughs> right now uh so it's 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 it's, it's i can see it can be becoming a, a, a more and more common occurrence uh for various reasons but uh I was just wanting to mention that uh, I'm a, you know, other than a retired fireman, I've been a high school football coach uh, since 1981. And, and with the purpose in mind, the, the direct purpose in mind is to be dealing directly as much as I can with non-white black males who I spend a great deal of time with. And uh, uh, although it's, 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 a, it's a work setting and I don't try to talk about racism, but at the same time I talk about justice and codification to those young black males so they can kind of like uh, avoid those type of encounters. And that's all I have for right now. Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, hey. Uh, yes, I, I did hear about that case. I did not know once again that he accused the accuser, the white female, but unfortunately, this is no surprise. Also, my opinion, white people are looking for revenge for Erica Kinsman not being able to send Jameis Winston to prison. You know, because remember, that was where all of this started. So, you know, it's like, if we can't get James Winston, we'll get some other black guy. Which was why it was disappointing to hear the black males who beat James Winston at the uh, college championship do a rape joke, you know, because, you know, they could find themselves in the same situation. It could be James Winston today, one of them, all of them tomorrow. And this also highlights just how 
This also highlights the stereotype of black men being dangerous, always out playing on white women, whether they're young, like 19-year-old Johnson, or this other young one. We got 75-year-old Bill Cosby being brought back in the news again. You know, playing a tape of him supposedly admitting to drugging women. So, covering the whole gamut. Meanwhile, it is to take you off of what Dylan Roosman, what James Paul Webb did, what the white biker gang in Texas did. But put the focus on the bad black guy. And as for that clip on Hattie, uh, was that guy Bias supposed to be his attorney? Yes. Because if I was him, I would I would get new representation. Because that did not sound like an advocate for him. And I personally would like to know how is he doing community service before a trial? You know, normally you do community service work after you were sentenced. But again, just goes to show you what what we're up against. And like I've been saying about the killer mocking verse for years, just watch the ending. That tells you the real aspects. Just watch the ending of that movie. You know, and anyone else can speak. Hello. Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Um, is the firefighter from Florida still there? I have a question for him. Yes, ma'am, I'm still here. Hi. Um, you said that you talked to uh, black males about codification. I just wanted to ask, um, what 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 is their reaction? And what what are their responses to your um, to, to to what you say to them? Uh, they're they're very receptive because uh, one thing I found out about young people, uh, quote unquote young people, and I used to be one. Uh, once once you you establish uh, trust with them, uh, and you're you're talking about more than football, I, I would I wouldn't dare have as the only reason why I'm in front of them is to be talking about a sport, be talking about football. I use football as a vehicle, as a vehicle, uh, a vehicle of. Uh, because there's something that I like and something that I know that they like. And in turn, 
for the most part, I'm, I'm, the, 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 the teams that I coach at overwhelmingly are non-white black black males, and in turn, I, I, best, I basically teach them things about share with them experiences that I've had in, in my lifetime that I know that they either are involved with or going to be uh, uh, confronted with. And uh, uh, anybody like myself would like to uh, have have an idea that someone that, that uh, have had some experiences before, before theirs on how to, uh, how to navigate through those experiences. And uh, so they're, they're, they're very receptive on it. The first thing has to be established is, is, is the level of trust between the, uh, you and that and that other person. And that that's that's really not an age thing right there. That's just in general. You know, are you for real? Are you, are you for real in in your interests and and uh, that sort of thing? And uh, basically, uh, I you know, simple codification is just a simple formula of thinking, speaking correctly, and then in turn correct action you know in, in that order in that order i think if you go out of that order you're going you're going to you know it's going to be a formula for disaster if, if you uh, go to action first before you do some thinking in a lot of case cases but uh, that's basically what that's basically what i do that's basically what i do of course yeah of course i, I teach football but but that's not the only it's plenty of time for the other other things you know you have their phone numbers you call them you call them on a constant basis, uh, and, you, and you, they're always around, and, and they come to you. They come to you for things, and they have they have uh, issues and problems. You know, uh, even standpoint of, of you know parents maybe breaking up, and of course the, the child is right in the middle of it. You know, as far as they're concerned, and they they come to you. They come to you, you know, uh, uh, for the most part, and uh, so it's 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 a very uh, important position to me that I find myself in when I'm when I'm dealing dealing uh, with them, and I've been I've been doing it since, like I said, since 1981 uh, uh, on that capacity, and probably doing it the day that I uh, uh, leave the planet physically. Did I answer your question, ma'am? Yes, thank you. That was very helpful. All right, you're welcome. Uh, just. To M one uh, point really quick, um, DeAndre Johnson, him doing community service, even though he has not been convicted of anything. Um, I could see a certain logic, right? Like particularly given what you said, right? If uh, whites in Florida are indeed out to seek vengeance for missing out on Jameis Winston, that you know now we're going to get any and every black person uh, in Florida. Plus they had that shooting uh, earlier uh, this academic year too, that I believe was a black suspected shooter. Uh, but if it's, you know, Hey, we're going after him. Uh, he might be saying, Hey, uh, and particularly this involves a white woman in Florida. Uh, let's, you know, try to do all we can to show that, Hey, you're admitting wrongdoing. You're not trying to say that you should have hit that white woman and she deserved to get it's like, we're not going to try to go that route. We're going to try and salvage things, maybe see if we can, you know, get get things so that you can, you know, get out and get a scholarship somewhere else and try to try to continue on with your career. But I could see that as as being a means of uh, 
trying to, as they say, curry favor uh, with white people who, uh, as Allen Iverson said, have a lot of power over his life. I could see that as being a part of the racist logic that went into that. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello? Yes. Hi. Yeah. Um, uh, with regards to the ball player, he's wrong. She's wrong. And if any charges should be filed against him, she, she needs to have her charges filed first um, and, and convicted first. And I hope that, and, you know, just like, you know, this is his career, and it's just like if he was a bricklayer, um, would you stop him from bricklaying from the rest of his life because he did something to this? Um, he has to pay whatever price he has to pay, but so should she because she, it seems as if, I could be wrong, but it seems as if she um, um, was the first person to make the assault upon him. And with regards to um, the opportunity housing in the neighborhood, um, I applaud anything that the federal government could do to establish justice and give the most constructive help to the people who need the most constructive help. However, it needs to go further because better schools are something that also was planned, in my opinion, I could be wrong, um, by the people. Unfortunately, there are very many races who are in charge. And safety um, with regards to drugs in, in black neighborhoods, again, that's something that is planned by the federal government. Again, I could be wrong, but many of these um, ACB, I guess that's the name of the bank, uh, different or, uh, bank organizations that have been laundering money. Um, and we already know in Los Angeles about the, the CIA and uh, um, the selling of the cocaine and uh, Freeway Ricky Ross and all that. So that's another thing um, because when we start start on this, it just simply, you know, we just getting scabs, you know, uh, digging up scabs and finding more scabs uh, as this thing goes further. So, um, you know, a voucher program, I mean, I have no idea. I think that black people should have reparations, um, and uh, I, I and we should have um, a special tax exempt status for some period of time, and so that we can establish ourselves from one generation to another, um, perpetuating wealth. And since you know the system is totally controlled by racist white supremacists, they would not want this to happen, and they will expose themselves. But I think that the efforts even the talking of it ought to be um, um, applauded. And I think it should continue to, and we should not back down at all. Just like the Jews did not back down um, with regards to their Holocaust. This was a Holocaust on different fronts to us, and we should not back down. And we should afford ourselves the same tenacity and um, going after people who have done us wrong as the Jews have done us. And I thank you very much. I am still learning, and I'll meet myself. Thank you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. How you doing, guys? Tom Smith in New York. Um, has a couple of um, observations um, based off the clips you played. Um, First, um, you know, hello to all. Um, the, the lady just spoke, and she brought up um, the drug laundering 
from HSDC and uh, HSDC is founded on drug laundering. Uh, if you go back to the Opium Wars, HSBC stands for the Hong Kong Shanghai Baking Corporation, and that's where they laundered all that opium they were selling to China. And the um, founder of that bank is the the um, is Cameron, the guy who's the he's the prime minister of England now. That's his grandfather who founded that bank, so he's filthy rich. Um, um, the white female who struck the black eye. Um, man, it's it's self defense. Self defense doesn't um apply to black people when um they're in altercations with white people, just like that. Stan Jones Brown doesn't either. Um, I never lived in a as far as um Tyler, what's the guy's name? Tyler Hasek Holtz. Um, I I was listening to his piece, and I never lived in an area considered as a all white area. But if I did, I'd be scared to death. You know, I'd be scared. I'd be so scared. I mean, I'd be living in total fear. I'd be scared for my kids, scared for my wife. Um, you know, reason why is just because someone could come up and hit you twice and you can't do nothing about it. Um, and if you do, you're in trouble. Um, and, and just the fear of um, now living in Harlem and so many white people here, sometimes late at night, I hate when I'm walking behind a white person because they're, they're constantly looking back and, you know, even even at work, you know, I need to get in the elevator with a white woman, and it's just me and her. I'm like, oh, God, she could go out and say anything. And, um, you know, I'd rather live with all black people and all our issues because I know it's an equal field, equal playing field as far as um, how justice is distributed against us, um, amongst us, you know. Um, it's not going to be uneven. And um, I'll mute my line. Thank you very much. Oh, also, Gus, um, last thing, James Wilson, um, I don't think that this is um, being done to affect him because they're going to get him eventually. You know, they're, they're very resilient. They never let one get away. So um, his day is coming. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That is excellent point uh i think on that uh white people they uh they had the oj simpson they have long memories uh, about uh negroes they feel have aggrieved them um i did just want to say really quick on the uh ta coast pete and uh he is a victim of racism victim of racism i don't have anything uh bad to say about him um but that piece when he was reading the excerpts uh from his book and the portion he said, I'm, I'm going to make sure I go back and read it. Uh, he said, and I get, so he's, he's writing, talking about the night he held his uh, son. Uh, At night I held you and a great fear wide as all our American generations took me. Now I personally understood my father and the old mantra, either I can beat him or the police. I understood it all. Cable wires, the extension cords, the ritual switch. Black people love their children with a kind of obsession. You are all we have, and you come to us endangered. I think we would like to kill you ourselves before before seeing you killed in the streets that made that um, that America made. That is a philosophy of the disembodied a of a people who control nothing, who can protect nothing, who are made to fear. 
not just the criminals among them, but the police who lord over them with all the moral authority of a protection racket. And uh, just that passage, I uh, it just reminded me. I can see why white people would enjoy that sort of commentary. And I'm not even stating whether or not it's true, but black people talking that sort of presentation of the pathology that white supremacy creates white people love that sort of thing that was what i was getting at in the piece that i wrote about why black death not the revolution will be televised they love this sort of thing it's it's in my opinion it's it's total uh necrophilia uh, on this, it's the it's the same sort of thing that feeds why white people love this. And if you notice, this was everywhere. Like they had this. Washington Post had a big write up. NPR had a big write up. New York Times had a write up. I mean, you couldn't get away from it. It was everywhere. Um, it's the same thing that fuels the white woman. She has an exhibit in Chicago. I know we have Chicago listeners. She has an exhibit on uh, Michael Brown. And it's got like a life-size replica of his dead body, like laid out in the street the way it was in St. Louis. And uh, she's got like a lynching and something else. But I mean, some this is some white woman has put this together. And this is supposed to be like her counter-racist effort. Uh, and someone asked me what I thought of it. It's totally tacky. And it's the exact same reason that I think white people adore that sort of commentary. And again, this is not a... a critique or criticism anything on uh mr coates even whether or not it's accurate or not it's just in my opinion what's driving uh the white fetish for that sort of literature and i will mute my line you can let me know if i'm not making sense anyone who dialed in with a hand up your line should be open if we have not heard from you proceed can i be heard, can I be heard? Oh. Ooh, i heard several females so let's get the females first May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Yes. Good evening, everyone. Um, just happy to be here. Um, first of all, uh, the lady who uh, had the bat running behind the, um, the kids uh, shouting racial slurs, I really don't care what happened prior to the to that incident that was not called for and for her husband to say they have nothing here is just, uh, just a a testament how uh, white people stick together with, with lies after lies after lies. I was really incensed hearing, um, just incensed, excuse me, how this guy from, uh, the, I, get, I don't know, the, the situation with the guy who supposedly, the woman who supposedly swung fo- first or whatever, uh, it was two, men, two gentlemen being interviewed about the, um, the situation. And the the commentator had to actually tell him, yes, he did hit him. Well, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me go to the tape. Let me roll the tape. Don't you? Don't you? Oh no! It was a sl- oh no! Look, no, he did not. He did hit him. And it it made me think of like Eric Gardner. You have the film, the the, the video right in front of your face, but your your racist insensitive. I mean, it's just just goes to show you that. When they have something in their mind and they had their mind made up, you can put it, you can put SHIT in front of them and they, 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 they still won't smell it. I, I really feel that way after hearing that because the guy had to go step by step to tell him, yes, then he finally says, oh, well, well, the truth, oh, he, he said words like this, she, uh, she did not hit him well, the truth should have walked away. The truth, <laughs> I mean, they know, they really know how to really, um, 
used their words in that meeting. It was just really insensitive to me, the way that whole situation went down. And then the fact of the matter is that this guy is doing community service work. You know, we power to the people, because we as black people, we hold a lot of power in different in, in, if we come together. Like if he would have just, um, uh, you know, just probably, you know, didn't adhere to this community service, not even going through a trial or whatever, just not doing that. And also, let me tell you, I am no fan of any black guy with a white guy, woman, especially when he's on campus and I don't care what situation. When I think about Jim Johnson, that, that um, our first black um, boxer, he was parading around with, the, uh, with a white woman, and I mean, they dragged him to the mud. I mean, talking about, Gus, how you say they want to see a black man beat down, they beat him down. They got this big Hercules guy. This guy was frail in his 40s or 50s when, you know, you're no longer boxing and got this guy to beat him down. So trust me, when I hear situations, I'm a little bit... I don't know, maybe, what do you call sinister? Because I'm like, well, I think you deserve that. Why were you with this woman in the first place? And what's the situation? So I'm sorry if I feel that way, guys, but I really, really do. I'm just tired of how, you know, these big guys on campus get these white women and they just think they're all that because they have a white woman. Secondly, this situation um, with the, the makeup situation, are these lesser no models? Because here on the East Coast, New York, New Jersey, when I look at um, – uh, fashion shows and you see the fashion runway, you see the back. Sometimes they show you in the back how the models are being made up. And I see black models being made up by, you know, whatever. So I'm wondering, in this situation, is this the lesser, these are the lesser known models? In any case, it's not fair because of course, even though they may be lesser, the white people are being catered to and the black people are not. So in this situation, I feel that the black people should come together and fight for this to change. Um, I think Last but not least, um, I think I touched on everything. Thank you so much, and I'll mute my line. Uh, the model? Yes, sir, just one second. The model, she uh, she was born on the continent, so she might not be in the exact same environment as what she would see here in the States, although I have heard a similar uh, critique a similar report of mistreatment by black models who were not on the continent where they had the exact same um, articulation uh, that they were being mistreated and they didn't have people respect them and they didn't have people who could properly like them or make up and you know on and down the board uh, but I've heard that same critique so I don't, I don't think that's anything that's exclusive to someone who was born on the continent um, the other thing um, the DeAndre Johnson situation that was not like his love interest sexual partner they were not even together uh, if you in the clip uh, the attorney uh, acknowledged that it didn't seem that they had any previous history that they didn't even know each other uh, that she was just at the bar they were not together he went to the bar to get a drink um, that is um, I'm I'm just pointing it out because it reminds me uh, we are about two, we're about a week from the start of the Jonathan Farrell trial, and I remember that there was a similar sentiment expressed, ultimately retracted, but it was expressed around Jonathan Farrell um, that perhaps he was with a white woman, and that's what you get, kind of you deserve what you get if you're with a white woman. He wasn't with a white woman either, uh, and I just uh, I have 
great reservation uh, about any time we start expressing some sort of sentiment or idea that a black person deserves to have racism against them because I staunchly oppose. I wouldn't care what the black person did. No one deserves to be mistreated a victim of racism. Uh, And I would encourage people to keep in mind that the non-white person in a sexual relationship with a white person, they are the victim. The person to be upset with would be the race soldier, the white person, male or female. But DeAndre Johnson was not with this white woman. This was just a random stranger race soldier that he had this conflict with. Well, I I retract my statement. I, I, I know I have to work on my sentiments, but I just see just it just happening to maybe me being a black woman and knowing that there's not a lot of black men while well, married, whatever. But I'm just saying, I just have my I know I know what you're saying and going. I have to kind of work on that, Gus. Right on. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everyone. This is uh, Puff. Um, two quick comments. Um, I just like Gus was saying just a minute ago that um, about Mr. Uh, Coates, I guess Mr. Kanisi Coates, he wrote that uh, piece about his son and everything. Um, I want to disagree with, with what Gus said. I want to say that white people don't like that type of speech. I'm going to say they don't like that type of speech because it exposes the victimization of non-white people, and they don't want that accepted. They want the illusion that it's all, quote-unquote, it's all fair across the board and whatever happens, happens, and white supremacy is not happening. And, you know, when they make statements like that, you know, it, it drops. Like, if, if the, uh, that was accepted, if that what Chinese was saying was accepted by black males, just like Dr. Wilson brought up, like, um, several times she said, I wish that all black males would come and say and, and publicly say to white people or white men that we are afraid of you. And that's why she says that because, you know, it would be it would be an honest uh uh response to all the racism and things that have been, you know, put about on uh black males. Um on a, on another note, um I wanna say like I was it wasn't in the uh commentary this time, but I don't like it when, you know, just like you were saying a few minutes ago, like, um, like you don't, you don't wish that, I don't wish either that, you know, black people could be mistreated or heap racism on. It's just that I like when people like that think a certain way, like that identify with white culture, they kind of wake up like non-white people that, that have that belief or that associate with white culture, they 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 get their wake up call. I like that when that happens. And this week it happened to um, well, I found this week I found out that it happened to a uh, victim of racism, Zoe Kravitz, the daughter of Lenny Kravitz and uh, Lisa Bonet. She got her wake up call because um, she they wouldn't even let her audition for the Dark Knight Rises movie. Because they said, quote, unquote, they were not trying to go in an urban direction. 
And so they, you know, they automatically, you know what I'm saying, checked her. You know, it's just like you you have this belief that, you know what I'm saying, you are, you identify more with the white, but then, you know what I'm saying, over time, you know, you have you the roles that you're offered as an African-American actress is not as, quote, unquote, uh, balanced as, as you think it is. And I like when people get their wake-up call. And that's all the comments I wanted. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I'm um, yes. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. A few things I wanted to touch on was uh, I noticed that the like the cameras really coming into play with a lot of these incidents because I know it's been said before, but like if it wasn't a camera involved or something to have some kind of evidence that white people either initiated some kind of aggression or racism or violent act towards black people. Like I can just imagine the kind of um, media reports and what uh, articles will say. Well, this athlete, uh, this uh, football player, a black male, he assaulted a, a, a white woman and it would definitely not even try and try and make it some kind of balance, even though there is camera footage involved, it's still um, white supremacy dominance. And I bring that up because, like, the woman, I think, like, that was down here in Florida, she uh, chased after the black teens with a bat. And I find it interesting that I think that was her husband on the uh, on the video and he said something about the kid or their son or something like that came down with the bat, and the wife took the bat. But when you look at the video, it does look like she was having an awful lot of aggression and hostility towards the black uh, teens. So he was definitely codified. Just like when I heard another segment, I think it was about the... Uh, the black male, the caricature, he was drawn with a noose around his neck. And I think somebody had asked a woman to take a poly- polygraph test or whatever it is, polygraph test. And she was like, no, she, she didn't want to do it. And just like the gentleman, the first caller, he said, white people will lie in every area of activity. And, um, I don't necessarily know what ended up happening to that woman. Was it was it reported in that that was that a white woman, by the way, Gus, or which incident? The noose picture or the bad incident? The uh, the noose incident. They asked that woman about the polygraph. Right, that was uh, a white woman. Her husband was also white. She worked at the police department and the person being characterized was the black softball coach yeah I'm like yeah that's that I think that's another example of the code like that they're trying not to break that, that white code and there's been a, a lot of uh, confederate flags by the way um, here in my area 
because they've been doing a lot of protesting. And I'm seeing people that are here locally, but they're on Facebook. And, you know, people taking pictures and stuff like, like saying OMG and I don't know what's going on here. It seems like a lot of people are surprised and really shocked. Like what the uh, female said, a wake-up call, you know. And um, to my last thing I wanted to say was, it was, uh, I guess it's considering the Area 8. They they interviewed um, Donald Trump. I think that was uh, Anderson Cooper. And he, he said something about Jeb Bush. He said, you know, the only reason he doesn't agree with me I don't know if he said it just like this, but he said only reason he doesn't agree with me with what I said because of, of his wife, and that makes him weak. He said something like that. It makes him weak, and he's soft. That's why he doesn't agree with me. So I found that interesting, and, and uh, that's all I have. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, I just like to make a comment on um, the, the the clippings that we were just we were listening to. Um, I noticed how um, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but it's more in your face. The white women and they're they're being very they're literally utilizing their. Um, white supremacist rights over blacks. The lady at the bar, the way she, she kicked him in the groin first. They, they left that out. She kicked him in the groin first. The relationship that they had prior to the bar scene was the incident with that. So that's the prior relationship. So he's already agitated because she's already being um, uh, violent and aggressive and racist. So that, that's what that was. And then I was listening to the clip with the lady um, and her husband. I noticed how white people stick together. The white man and the white woman, they're hand in hand. He said, oh, all she said was just a couple of little words. You know, like she's jack sprat, can eat no fat. No, that, she didn't say a couple of words. They incite these situations and then go back, go back to first base. Oh, no, I don't know what happened. He just She didn't do anything. They have nothing on her. He had nothing on her. They already, they're preparing it to where it's like he had nothing on her. And even in the bar with the guy, the man was like, oh, well, yeah, he, he should. Well, if he didn't hear, he should have hear because it's too bad. We're doing it like this. They're going to stick together. The white women are going to continue to play damsels in distress while they're injecting their venom on blacks. I don't know about any other race, but I'm just speaking of blacks. They're going to continue to do that. They're going to continue to be the aggressor. And then when the cameras are rolling, they're going to pretend like, oh, no, I didn't do anything, or she's just a woman. This is going to continue. They're going to continue to use this stuff. they got people campusing um, uh, uh, the college grounds, like, oh, no, whistling at the ladies. And with that Emmett Till stuff, they're, they're really putting it together to terrorize blacks, especially the black males. And they're just victims already. Even if they're dating these women, they're, these women, they're still victims because the white women are approaching them. They, they're not picking the white women. The white women are selecting them because they're in a victim state. So they're not selecting anyone. They're selected. And, and that's it. I just wanted to comment on that. And I'll um, press mute. And thank you so much. 
Anybody that hasn't shared, you should go ahead and speak now. We got about uh, 15 minutes or so before we get to workplace racism. A little less than that. If you haven't shared, speak up now. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hi, Gus. It's Ohio here, and I'm going to try not to be nervous. But I just briefly wanted to get it off my chest about Bill Cosby. Um, Normally... I am a diehard supporter supporter of women's issues, um, and I would be the first if I thought Cosby was guilty to, you know, to say he deserves what he's getting. However, Cosby was doing nothing different than what goes on in Hollywood, and what has been going on in Hollywood since his inception. I mean, it's a place where women are exploited, where children are exploited, and even men. And um, Cosby drugs flow freely in Hollywood, and what he was doing is the standard M.O. Um, Marilyn Monroe said that when she got her contract with 20th Century Fox, I'll never have to suck another blank again. And Elizabeth Taylor said that she slept with Ronald Reagan when she was 15. He was 37 years old. And as far as his visits to the ranch, uh, to the mansion, I mean the um, mansion ranch, um, the Playboy Mansion, I read a book by a woman named um, Isabella St. James, and it's called Bunny's Tales. And it's, it's about... The Playboy Ranch, which is basically a glorified prostitution house. And Hugh Hefner, you know, he gets the women uh, plastic surgery. Uh, he gets some hair extensions. I forget how much he spends uh, how much he spends on that. However, uh, in the book, it said he also gives them drugs. So, you know, uh, I just find... You know, what's happening to Cosby is because he is a black male, and these are, and, and so far the majority of the victims appear to be white females. Um, and the media, being what it is, loves, loves to perpetuate that myth of black males, you know, um, hunting after white females. Um Tiger Woods, unfortunately, I'm not a fan of Tiger Woods, but they ruined his career for basically committing adultery, which, you know, probably most of his colleagues were doing the same thing. However, he was black and committing adultery with white women. So, um, let's see, and, and, and if I could just say just one thing, there's a case that the media is absolutely ignoring, and it's more profound, it's more scandalous than Bill Cosby. And it's the case of the billionaire pedophile named Jeffrey Epstein, who is being sued along with the the attorney, Alan Dershowitz, uh, being sued by a young woman because Dershowitz had a private island, and he was taking underage girls to this island and having sex with them. And there was a major cover-up in Florida uh, with this case, and it involves Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, George Mitchell, 
I forget who all who escapes me at the moment, but the records are on the smoking gun, and it's been it has been reported on some, but it, for the most part, this makes Cosby look <laughs> it, it, it minor. But again, this involves very prominent white males, and so I doubt very seriously. I don't know what will become of the case. They said that the attorneys that are handling this lawsuit are very good attorneys that represented one of the victims actually they are one is a former federal judge and they said this is a very very serious case now whether Alan Dershowitz will be able to sneak uh, manage to get from under it I don't know but uh, that is a case that they you know the ones that are screaming screaming about Cosby the Gloria Allred and Nancy uh, Grace and all those people have are quiet on this particular case. So that's all I want to say, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, anybody else that we have not heard from? Uh, about eight minutes left. You should speak up now if we have not heard from you. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I want to tofu back on the caller that just came up uh, for the Hollywood. Uh, I mean, that's just standard operating procedures for Hollywood. We can call it way back to the silent film stars of Fatty Arbuckle, the situation in Indiana, uh, and moving forward. But I wanted to say about the uh, college football players, um, you remember there was a scandal, I believe it involved the uh, uh, Colorado University. Uh, when they're high school students, they visit a number of campuses before they actually commit. And I believe that they were actually providing white women uh, when they would visit some of these camp campuses to say, if you sign and go and help this school, the boosters and so forth, this is what you'll be getting on a regular basis. And and, and there were white women involved, and I believe it was uh, Colorado University. Another thing about the use of the cameras, uh, uh, there, um, uh, I believe Ohio State or one of the ones where it was basically a riot. Um, um, and and uh, there's an area, uh, UC Berkeley, um, that's called Fraternity Roll, and I saw a video, it's on YouTube, about a guy who made the misfortune to buy a house along Fraternity Roll, and there were naked women running up and down the streets, chairs were thrown through neighbors' windows from the second floor. I mean, it was just pure debauchery and chaos. And uh, in the video, if you, you, you go to YouTube and check it out, it basically said, well, you, know, you know, what do you get? This is Fraternity Roll. And and you see these kids, I mean, women walking down the street with blankets around them and just alcohol flowing. It was just like you said. It was uh, it was basically uh, 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 like you know uh, a Roman uh, a Roman uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, oh God, I can't think of that particular uh, uh, person that, that that regurgitated food and kept going on and on with these orgies. Um, um, and now when we look at the way video cams are used, going all the way back to the Rodney King aftermath of the Rodney King verdict with Reginald Denny, they identified all of those males that were in that video. Now, juxtapose that with some of these other videos, uh, you see people committing crimes, and they don't identify those whites. What do you expect? This is a system of white supremacy racism. There are some clear shots of people doing things in the, uh, in, in the crowds and so forth, but they seem to go unnoticed. But if you think about the uh, the Reginald Denny thing, and they identified every one of those individuals and brought them to trial. Um, uh, and and if you go back to all the lynchings, there's a famous uh, one where the guy's pointing to the charred body in the background, and he's got sort of like a Hitler mustache, and he's pointing. 
uh, all of these people, uh, uh, they're just open. They don't have to hide their faces. And, 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 you know, it goes on. But now as I'm still confused, but less, but as time goes on, I'm learning, uh, that I should not be surprised. This is a system of white supremacy racism. And, um, they completely dominated all nine areas of activity. And, um, that's, that's pretty much all that I'll give myself. Thank you. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Hello to the host, Mr. Dutch Renegade, to all the callers and listeners on the line. Um, just want to just say a few things about uh, just some of the comments I heard tonight. The lady that um, was uh, from, Cleveland, uh, from Ohio, I'm sorry, um, she has some very good points. And um, to the young man that just finished speaking, he also has some very good points about what goes on, you know, with sports. And let's face it, white women, for the most part. I remember back in the early 80s, I used to live in Houston. And um, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie. I think it was with Burt Reynolds, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And when I lived in Houston, you know, I'm like, oh, this movie. We're coming to find out that the movie was actually based on uh, a, you know, what it was a ranch. And these boosters, you know, to the schools, you know, University of Texas and stuff like that, you know, they would, after, like, if they won a championship or won a game, you know, they would take these guys up there to, um, you know, to this ranch, you know, to celebrate. And I remember I was living in Houston at the time, and there was a, a, an investigative reporter uh, named Marvin Zimmer. He's dead now. And I understand he broke the story because he went up there to investigate it, and he got beat up. He got beat up real bad. And unfortunately, the story was not in Harris County. I mean, I'm sorry. The ranch was not in Harris County, and that's where uh, that's where Marvin Zillow was from. The ranch was in another county, so he was like off his territory. He he got beat up pretty bad, but he broke the story and come to find out that's what it was about. So when it comes to sports, you know, athletes and white women, you know, it's almost like they go to hand. Like I mean, they go together hand in hand. I had a friend of mine who she was talking to, like we were talking about baseball, and I don't get into baseball at all, but she was. Explain to me, like, Sammy Sosa, you know, you got a lot of ballplayers from, like, the Dominican Republic and a lot of South, South America. And she said, that's a part of the, she said, that's a part of the deal. And I was like, so what is it? She said, they're promised white women, you know, uh, white women to come and play. And, you know, Sammy Sosa, I, I guess him and his wife are still together, but I do remember when he was playing ball, he was married with a white woman. And so I'm saying all that to say, just even with, um, you know, these sports thing, like this young brother, I mean, they, you know, his base, his career is basically over. She attacked him, but yet he's being blamed for this whole thing. And I think the other thing, and I, and I, I hate to say this, but I think this is some of the pushback, too. You know, for a minute out there in cyber world, if you will, you had a lot of black men, young, and I tend to know it was young, younger black men who had just a lot of very unkind things to say about black women, and then they go on with these white women. And now it's, it's somewhere in this area where you may have white women who just, just now feel that the stuff and things that they could do to black men and they don't have to worry about. Um, I mean, like in this case, you know, she's not being charged with anything. And uh, even though, like the man tried to say, oh, you know, she didn't hit him. Oh, she just reached out and, you know, swatted him. She didn't hit him. But it's like, well, no, all you got to do is look at the video. She did hit him. And then, like you said, 
when um I guess because I didn't know who it was, and I think you said Sean Hannity. When you know they looked at the video, and they said, you know, that man who was, you know, swearing up and down that she didn't hit him, he didn't say anything else about that because, you know, he saw that. So I think that unfortunately some of this um, pushback is coming too. That now, you know, like you said, the women's white women's true nature is coming forth, and now it's, it's, it's almost it, it just appears to me that maybe there's going to be a swing of things, and now the thing is ugly. It just gets ugly. You know what I mean? It is really getting ugly. White woman comes down the street, her son brings the bat. What you bring the bat for? We go down here just to talk to people. You bought the bat. There's a reason why you bought the bat. And there's a reason why, you know, so the white man is backing up the white woman gets the bat. She's the one doing all the swinging. She's the one doing, you know, uh, the one threatening and menacing and everything. So it's just that I, I think that it is, you know, I would say very unfortunate. It could be very fortunate that the true nature and the white woman now is coming to the fore. And unfortunately, I pray that I know the fire fighter said he talked to young black men. I hope more black men can talk to young black men about the dangers of um, them, and uh, like you said, about interracial relationships being sad. Very sad situation. And I'll, uh, that's all I want to say. I'll read my mind. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Um, it is time for workplace racism. Oh. Now, just one more. Uh, I uh, I reckon we can tolerate one. Uh, it's 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 quick and trivial. Um, I had I had said you know just about the melanin difference between white people and black people. They they have a different kind of melanin. A lot of them do. It's not. It's not very effective. It doesn't move very well. And for that reason, they have no lines. They don't have any melanin on their palms and things because it just doesn't cross that barrier. It doesn't move. I was watching the movie The Matrix, and when he, when Lance Fishburne holds out his hand for the white guy to take the blue pill or the red pill, it's a white person's hands. I'm sure of it. Those are not black hands. Those are, that's a white person's hands. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he wouldn't even take a pill from a black person. So if you if you get a chance to look at that, if anybody looks at that, can you tell me, Do am I imagining that? Or are those, that's just a white person's hands. He is not reaching over and taking a pill out of a black person's hands. And if you get confused, you can just Google images and look at palms, and you can tell the difference between white people and black people and That'll be easier for you, I guess. But let me know if I'm just imagining that. Thank you so much. Right on. Workplace racism. Uh, if you would like to chime in, the number to dial is 760-569-7676. The code is 564 943 Press star six if you would like to participate. Workplace racism, feel free to chime in. Uh, anyone who, uh, certainly if you haven't shared and you have something on workplace racism, you should go first. Uh, but if not, anyone who uh, would like to chime in, feel free.
can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I'll, I guess I'll start off. Uh, although I'm I'm known as the retired fireman, uh, I do have a uh, workplace. Coaching is not really work to me, but nevertheless, in all practicality, it, it is. I get a small paycheck at the end of the year, uh, and I can you know leave it anytime I want as far as I'm concerned. But nevertheless, what it gives me, it gives me the opportunity, as I mentioned before to deal directly with black males uh, who are younger than me, you know, younger than me, my grandson uh, at this point in time, because uh, since I've been doing it for so long. Uh, and in turn, uh, not all of those 30 some odd years, but at least about 25 of them, uh, when I became uh, a lot lesser confused, I have been dealing directly with uh, kind of racism, uh, experimentation, and uh, interaction with them. It depends on on uh, the surroundings as far as personnel. Uh, for the most part, as most of us know, in the public school system, uh, uh, non-white people are uh, primarily from the administrators on down to the staff, as well as the students. Uh, I've worked in a lot of environments where every last one of those people were non-white black people. And on my level, since it's, since it's so unimportant as far as status-wise and position-wise, and uh, I don't depend on it to uh, feed myself. I speak in some cases, not all, but in some cases, directly to those children on the system of racism and white supremacy. Uh, uh, when I see uh, it's uh, a possibility to do so. Uh, and uh, for the most part, I, I do get, I do get some constructive uh, reactions, uh, not only from the, uh, from the child, but also their parent or parents on the subject, because a lot of uh, non-white black parents uh, want want uh, uh, others to speak to their son on subject matters, uh, especially stuff. In, in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of the times the this, the the, primary, the quote unquote primary parent of uh, that male is a mother. And she and, and the, the story the stories of dangers of white females, uh, non-white black females who were mothers want somebody to speak to their son about that danger. Still, and uh, I have done that in the past. Uh, as I mentioned before, the the uh, the uh, relationship with black males into sports now. Uh, it's boosted up more to a celebrity status. White females are very, very, very aggressive uh, in that in that uh, people activity. Uh, they hang around the dirty locker room and wait for those black males. They own the field themselves in some cases, uh, and the athletic uh, 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 training environment. 
uh, and they're, it's more of quote unquote groupy type of situations. Well, this, show, this is uh, workplace racism, uh, the sharing part. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm just stating from the standpoint of the, 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 the give the listeners the, the idea of the environment and what it looks like on a daily basis. Uh, and and uh, so there, there still is a lot of uh, you, you, they, they, they are they are very confused is what I'm saying in that environment and and it's, it's needed. So I try to uh, I try to uh, uh, show some sort of codification, uh, share some kind of codification with them, uh, and uh, on a on a daily basis. That's basically what I'm, I'm trying to uh, illustrate, you know. And it's uh, I get success sometimes, you know. I don't, but you know, it's it's a it's an on working uh, system. And uh, thank you for listening. Andy Hurst. Yes, ma'am. Hello, everyone. Uh, and greetings from uh, Southern California. I uh, made another, um, um, what is it, not even catch up mistake uh, with my uh, co worker and um, almost got in serious trouble, but I, but I got myself out of it. What happened was, um, Somehow or another, there's a computer glitch, and it has me me able to order her supplies, and she's able to order mine. Well, so when I um, went into the system, I saw that, and I said, well, I know she's completely out, and I still have plenty, so I'll just go ahead. So it's going to let me order it. I'll just order it. And I uh, let my supervisor know. About a week and a half later... I get this nasty gram from headquarters saying that I'm not certified on this product and I have no business ordering it and I can't, you know, it's all against policy. And, uh, you know, and and they wanted an explanation for me. So I had to write up this whole thing. I went back to the policy. They forgot that the policy doesn't really say. It says that I can't distribute, you know, her supplies. But but it doesn't say anything about me ordering it. In fact, it says that when there's, um, like, if the person's going to be out for a while, that is the recommended thing so that you don't lose that ordering window. So I wrote all that up and put it back in there, and they sat on it for about another week and a half and then just sent me something saying that, um, you know, because they can't be wrong. You know, they made a mistake. They made a mistake when they um, switched the uh, the system around, and then they made a mistake when they, you know, misread the policy. And so, so instead of giving those supplies to my partner, they're going to give them to someone else, even though, you know, my team is out of these supplies. They're just doing it just just because they're they're just going to transfer it. But I said, boy, oh, boy, i got to put a bigger sign up there, not even catch up, because I could have just let it go. And it's just been a big headache. Another lesson learned. And I will uh, mute my line. Is it your sense that this is just like a spite thing in them <laughs> deciding to give the supplies to a whole other group of people? 
that's the only thing it could be because it doesn't make any sense because, okay, it, it was taking them literally weeks to fix it. We, no one knows what happened or how they, how it was broken, but weeks. And so they, they said, for, and it's random because it doesn't make sense. Okay, as of July, I think July 1, we were, it was going to be fixed. But in the meantime, they're going to transfer those supplies to someone else. Well, the supplies still haven't arrived. And so, so why not keep them in, in our, you know, on, with our team? So, but they just do that. They've done that to me before out of spite. I found something. It was the same thing with the same supplies, and they made a mistake. And when they called me on it, I had everything lined up to show that it wasn't me. And so at that time, we were on paper. They went through every um, single document I had done for the last three years, and they found one where I didn't um, fill in one of the little boxes. I didn't put a three in that one little box, and it was like thousands of them, right? Because they can't, they just don't like, you know, being wrong. And so that was it. They just, you know, they put it, that one, they broke me up. They wrote me up because I missed one out of thousands. But this time they couldn't write me up. So they just, you know, transfer the sample somewhere else. May I be heard? Yes, sir, we can hear you. Um, I am in a state of, I guess, anxiety right now, and I just want to get some feedback from uh, everyone here who's who's here this evening. Um, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, I work for a large agency that has numerous departments that have a large number of employees, and one of the black employees who's an analyst in one of the departments about a year ago did an audit on a department that is run by a white woman and the audit the black analyst failed uh, the department in its audit so just recently the black analyst was transferred under the white woman who she did the audit on the department on. So since she's been under this white woman, she has claimed retaliation and hostile work environment. Now the black analyst called my manager to discuss the harassment and retaliation that she was experiencing by the white woman. My manager is a white guy. He told the black analyst to go back and try to discuss her concerns with the white woman to try to work them out. Now, the black analyst did not believe she was getting any satisfaction with that recommendation, so she called me and shared the incident with me and I told her if she believed that 
there was a violation of a policy in the department and she was experiencing retaliation and harassment to file a grievance. So she did. The black analyst filed a grievance. Now I am uh, at, have the task of being the mediator in the situation. And based on what the black analyst told me in advance, I suspect that there was some uh, a violation of how she's being treated in the workplace. One of the reasons is that I don't believe that they should have transferred her into a department that she failed in an audit, and now she's experiencing this retaliation and harassment by this white woman. And so I'm stuck with the task of trying to coordinate and set up a meeting and being the mediator in this situation. And ultimately, I have to report the findings to my white manager and make a recommendation. Hmm, that's deep. What, uh, well, I, I guess I had two questions. Number one, like, what, uh, what type of input are you seeking? Because I know you said you were under some anxiety about all of this. And what, uh, I don't know what sort of deadline you're working with, but, like, what, <laughs> what? Well, well, I haven't set up the meeting yet between the black analyst and the manager. On Friday, I had to get some meeting dates from the manager so that I can uh, put forth them to the analyst to sit in on the meeting. And I have to sit in on the meeting to sift and sort through um, the black analyst's concerns and how she's being uh, harassed and retaliated against. But I do have some insight to her concerns because prior to her filing a grievance, and that was my recommendation to her uh, um, to file a grievance, but I didn't anticipate it would be turned over to me to hear the grievance. I thought one of the other liaisons and mediator would be assigned a task, but it's been given to me. And um, I believe that the lady, the black analyst, is being um, harassed and retaliated because I don't think that they should have put her in a department that she audited that failed an audit by that um, she failed the department and now she's under this white woman who she failed. So I'm just kind of, I have to go through the process. I have to be neutral in my position. But I do believe that um, she's been harassed and retaliated. 
but I need to hear all of her. I haven't heard all of her um, examples on how she's been retaliated and harassed, but I do just by some of the information that she provided to me and the mere fact that they would put her in a department um, that I believe she should not have been in puts me at a very awkward spot because I know that the department supports white people in whatever retaliation and harassment that they impose on black people. And for me to conclude that there is some violation, I just feel like it's going to now put me at a very awkward situation. Why was she transferred? Was What was the rationale for that? See, I don't know that yet, and that's part of what I'll have to, in my discovery process, uh, when the meeting is set up, all of those are things that I have to ask um, when I meet with both parties. Was corrective action taken as a result of that audit? Did they did they have to make some changes? Or? Um, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that the black analyst told me that the department she's been now placed in failed the audit. So I don't know what um, correction corrective measures were taken, or if any were taken. It just seems odd that they would put her, the one that failed them, in the department when they need correction. That's a, I think they that, did that, that deliberately. I think they did that deliberately. It's this, I think that's the same sort of spite in them taking the supplies from you all is to put her, particularly a black person, <laughs> to put her in the very department, like, so that she can just be terrorized uh, by these people that she ostensibly failed. Um, but I was, I was going to ask if you think it's, if it's in any way possible that it could come out that you suggested, hinted, intimated that she seek mediation and then you ended up being the perp- the person doing the mediation, do you think that could come up and, you know, be cause for white people to, to say that you're biased or you, you know, tried to orchestrate all this? Well, that's not a concern to me right now because one of my responsibilities is when employees contact me to uh, inform me that they have been subject to some kind of uh, policy violation, one of my assignments is to tell them if you believe that uh, you have been, um, there's a policy or procedure that has been violated to file a grievance, and then through the discovery process will be determined whether or not that there was any merit to your claim. And when I told her that I didn't know that I would be later on when she did file it, because it was later, it was maybe a week or two when I had talked to her, and then I just kind of left it alone. But then she filed a grievance, and then she called my manager, and um, 
discussed the matter with my manager, and my manager told her to go back and talk to the white woman and try to work it out. She didn't believe that she was getting any satisfaction that way, so when she called me, I told her to file a grievance. And then that way would start the clock ticking and have it on record that she was being violated and wanted to seek some remedy and solution to her situation. But I did not believe that when she did it, it would be assigned to me. Do they randomly assign um, Alice to um, cases then? Or, or Yeah. And I kind of suspect that my boss is practicing racism, white supremacy by assigning it to me as well. Why do you think that assignment is an act of racism? Um, there's just some, our relationship is strained. Like, is it any, because of that strained relationship, like, is there any reason to think, like, this was done deliberately to to sabotage you or to put you in a position that would make problems for you? I don't have any proof of that, but the mere fact that it was assigned to me, I felt was, again, a very uh, strange uh, tactic or war strategy tactic instead of assigning it to someone else for what purpose like for what war objective um i think by the mere fact that i had already had some communication with the black analyst and had uh instructed her what to do um, I just believe that it would have been appropriate for someone else to have been assigned her case who would have not had the insight that I had uh, in talking with the black analyst. Because when she talked to me, she gave me a lot of information about what was happening to her and what had occurred and I don't know that to be true because it's one-sided when it, she was telling me her story that certainly that was her perspective of the situation but immediately I thought okay you audited this department and failed this department uh, that was not appropriate for the management to assign or transfer you to that department, specifically a department that you audited and failed. And one of my questions is, could have, when I meet with them, could she have been placed somewhere else? Why this particular department? And usually I know that from the department's perspective, it's always a business necessity is the reason why they give their reasoning for transferring 
employees based on the needs of the department or it's a business necessity. And my next question would be, what is that necessity? What is that need? Good questions. I would say just briefly, uh, in case anybody else wants to make sure they get in, um, because we have about 13 minutes left, that would fit the pattern if they deliberately placed her there uh, in some sort of vindictive manner, which I guess she'll be able to find out. Maybe you can update us, you know, after everything goes down. But if they placed her vindictively, then it also could have been a a vindictive assignment uh, to give this to you, because I'm I would have reason to suspect that the white people might also know that she talked to you um, at some point uh, in this process. So it could have been two vindictive uh, assignments given for, you know, whatever, whatever they happen in store. But I guess she'll know more after the meeting. Yeah. And I know I felt somewhat um, some anxiety because there was a chain of emails from this white manager to my manager, and I was CC'd on the chain of emails. Um, so, I mean, that kind of also adds another element to me uh, in terms of what my thought is right now about transferring this a black uh, analyst to this particular department because initially I thought this was inappropriate, but the chain of emails that's coming from my white boss to this white woman appears as if the transfer was justified. And for me to have a different opinion about the transfer may make it difficult for me. Are you allowed at all to say that, you know, uh, you know, your friends, or you have a relationship with this particular person and you would, uh, you know, kind of need to, you know, you wouldn't be able to be objective, so therefore it's probably best to assign it to someone else. Can Can you... Well, I don't have a relationship with this woman. Uh, I don't know who she is. I could be wrong, but um, just I, I felt that when she called my manager, he should have told her to file a grievance and not have t told the woman to go back to the white woman and try to work out whatever differences they were having. So when the black woman called me, I didn't tell her to go back and try to work them out. I told her, uh, you need to report your claim, and the first measure of reporting is to file a grievance because you don't want to um, pass the time limits of your rights. So they're aware that you counseled her before she filed the yes. grievance? I didn't really counsel her. I just gave her a recommendation on what to do. And I haven't heard the entire 
a matter in its entirety because I have to set up a meeting with both parties and hear uh, all of the elements, uh, what occurred, what happened in this particular situation. I just wanted to to hop in here, uh, and this is one I, like I said, I definitely I hope you'll be able to update us on this as it uh, evolves. But uh, we, I wanted to make sure I checked to make sure if there are other people who wanted to make sure they commented before the program wrapped up. If anybody else wanted to get something in briefly, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, this is Frank from Black Hollywood. Um, how you doing? Uh, I wanted to get in earlier, but I'm actually on one of my other jobs, so forgive any background noise you might hear. Um, I, I do a lot of survival jobs to get myself going, and one of which is a customer service position where I deal with a lot of uh, white uh, males and females, mostly females, in a kind of delivery capacity. Um, Thomas in New York had said something about noticing you know, kind of an uptick. But I think since these the violences occurred in Charleston and, you know, the the weekly report of some non non white uh person being killed, uh, I, I've noticed the codification for a lot of these people is to ratchet up the anti blackness. I think there's a lot of hostility. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that recently. Um, but I've been feeling a lot of you know, kind of snippy attitudes. I mean, locked doors behind me as soon as I walk up and deliver. You know, they're all nice at first. Then they lock the door, slam the door, and um, chain it behind them. <laughs> um, but there's also been um, several several reports. I got a demerit today, basically, because a uh, customer said I asked for a tip. Um and actually, you know, this is a tip industry. You know, we, we make our money off of tips, mostly. Um, it's not uncommon to get a tip, but a lot of time they like to just do it all in one transaction with their card. Uh, but the thing is, we get paid once weekly, so we've got to finance our own gas expenses. And it gets harder and harder. So I've been asking my customers for cash tips up front. And um, so I got a demerit for that. And... Um, I had several incidents with uh, some of my supervisors who are all kind of ethereal because uh, I work in kind of a, a app. It's kind of the new app economy like Uber and, you know, s- several other companies where, you know, you're, you're kind of an independent contractor, so you don't have a lot of contact with uh, the particular white person. But not yet and still, they'll chew you out when you do something wrong. Uh, you'll get a call or email or a text. Um, but beyond that, I've just noticed uh, it's a lot of anti-blackness on all sides. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a lot to deal with sometimes, especially when you're just trying to, you know, finance your dream, <laughs> you know. So if anybody had any suggestions, I'd appreciate it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if anybody, if anybody ever... Um, recognize any new anti-blackness since these events. May I be heard? Yes, sir. 
I agree with the caller that just spoke. I think with the incident that's going on in Charleston, South Carolina, um, these incidents that are being shown where the guy hit the woman in the bar, all of this is white people amping up their racism, white supremacy practices toward us these interracial relationships that they are putting in our faces. White people don't like to see that, but they impress black people by putting that in our faces, and then they turn around and practice more racism, white supremacy against us. So I agree with the caller that just spoke. Um, this war is a tough Role to hold, and sometimes I feel we are losing this battle. Right on. We have about three minutes left. Yes, sir. How you doing, Thomas Smith in New York again? Um, I agree. Um, I think we're. I know we're losing the battle. Um, as I told you guys, I recently started a new job on a temporary basis. Um, on Wednesday, they made me a permanent employee, um, so I officially work for the law firm. And, um, you know, to go over my role as a new employee, they had a huge meeting yesterday, um, a lot of switches and people's hours and things, um, and our responsibilities. Now they have another person on staff um, increasing the responsibilities, rather, and um, one of the things that one of the managers says said I'm a, and like I told you, with six employees and five managers, and I've never worked in anything like this before. All five of the managers, four of them are white, and one of them could definitely pass until he opens his mouth and talk. He has an accent, uh, a Spanish accent, so that gives him away. But um, all of the people who do the job are black, except for one Latino or Spanish, Hispanic lady. Um, you know, Spanish-speaking lady from um, Central America. Either way, they said, um, you know, I'll give you guys enough vote to hang yourselves. And, you know, that that's, you know, the cliche has been used before, but, you know, being, you know, my counter-racist gear went up, so enough vote to hang yourself. And I just want to know what you guys thought about that comment. I mean, uh, do you think that was a racist comment, or he was just um, using the term of speech? Um, all of the employees are black, mind you, but this was a white Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask: Was uh, did a white person make the comment or make that uh, metaphor, that phrase? Yes, it was a white male making it to us. Um, five black males and one lady from Central America, who was definitely not white, but not black in the system of white supremacy. Was it somebody else going to comment? I just wanted to hear the comment one more time. What was the uh, thing he said? What did he say? He said, I'm going to give you guys enough rope to hang yourselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the slave master speaking to the slaves. He knew that he could get away with that. He knew that he could make that statement without any one 
even having concern about it. Uh, once again, it's like what Neely Fuller says. White people are just practicing business as usual. I absolutely think it was uh, racist, and that's so common. I think that's the significance of those little segments. And, I mean, you hear them so frequently where white people are joking about hanging a black person. That black, that white woman that got arrested in Florida that had the bat, she wasn't just calling him a nigger and threatening him with the bat. She said she was going to lynch his whole family. She said she would hang his whole family from her tree. Um, they know. Instinctive. That's why I pay a lot of attention to the type of metaphors that whites uh, use. But they know that language and they know the power dynamic uh, that they're trying to convey of terrorism. That this is a terroristic power relationship between us and you niggers. And they're just reminding everybody uh, of that constantly uh, when they use that sort of language. And I mean, it is. These are managers. You all are working for them. This is a terroristic power arrangement that we have here and uh yeah that's the way uh that's the way we're going about our business uh with that we got our three hours uh unless this is like 10 seconds can you do ten it seconds. In- 10 seconds I got two quick things. uh gus uh I, there's a show called tom like this show that oh I heard. man i'm not it, i can't do it uh for a tv well, show no, but you want racist <laughs> jokes no it's racist jokes okay they do a, a segment called Be Funny, and it's all racist jokes. And if you want to get a good slice of what white, what's on white people's mind, they're doing it every Wednesday. And, like, just, I mean, the worst stuff you've heard. And, like, I, I just forgot about it because I, I got so offended originally. And the second thing is I want to thank you for the compensatory calls. And I, I realize your, your DJ skills are what's completing this, and, like, it's amazing to me. So I want to thank you for that because I know it's a task every week with all this craziness going on. Right on. Uh, Ten seconds. Yes, I just want to say power to the people. And also, I know I've been hearing a lot tonight about getting muted or we're losing a unmuted battle. We can never feel that way. When we begin to look at our history as African Americans, where we're here and now, we can never. I just always understand, as Gus said, these are white people. I, I learned so much to say to myself, when a white person does something, I say nothing and look at them because I know now that these are white people and they're going to do what they're going to do. So why should I even get upset? I mean, I just understand. I say nothing and it works because if I keep going back and forth, it's going to just fuel the system. So understand that these are white people and they do what they do. Thank you so much, Gus. Right on. And with that, we will wrap things up. Uh, We should be back uh, on Tuesday. We have a white woman coming with us. Uh, She just wrote this report saying that white people need to own Dylan Roof, uh, not try to act as though he is some strange manifestation of whiteness. Uh, She should be here on Tuesday and on Wednesday the black Clemson professor, he did that segment last week where he was talking about he was at church and he was next to a white woman and he didn't want to hold her hand. He was creeped out by her. He should be on the program on Wednesday uh, to kind of share some of his thoughts on all that, why he capitulated and grabbed her hand eventually, and his thoughts on what's transpired in South Carolina. He should be here Wednesday. Normal program times, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and we should uh, have our once a month early program uh, with Shani this coming 
or a week from tomorrow. So uh, next Sunday, uh, that would be the 19th. Uh, we should have our early program. So it'll be uh, 12 noon next Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific. And for people that are listening outside the States, I guess that's uh, like 5 in the afternoon UK time. 5 p.m. in the afternoon UK time for folks. If you'd like to tune in next Sunday for folks uh, or people in the States, if you know, you just it's uh, too late for whatever reason for you to participate during our normal live program next Sunday, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Right on. If you have any confusion, problems, gripes, questions, uh, feel free. Drop an email until justice at Gmail dot com until justice at Gmail dot com. Uh, on Twitter at until justice at until justice. Uh, if you want to connect with any cows listeners in your area, drop an email and just put the city or state or country in the subject. So California contact New York contact uh, Southern Florida contact Dallas contact, etc. France contact. Uh, just put that as the subject. Very important that you put that as the subject so that it makes it easier for me to find and pass along people in Oklahoma, California, Japan, uh, Montreal. If you're in those areas or other places, just drop an email until justice at gmail dot com. And we'll try to facilitate that so people can have a little more contact. I absolutely think it has been uh, a very trying time for a lot of black people and just dealing with all of this constant trauma. Uh, and if you, uh, have just one person really that can just have such a huge impact, just having a little extra support with someone who understands, uh, what the system of white supremacy is doing to us. So definitely let me know. I'll try and facilitate that. Thanks all for tuning in. And, uh, we will be back, uh, again on Tuesday, check the black talk radio page, Facebook pages, uh, for updates. All the information should be there. If we have any surprise programs between now and Tuesday evening thanks for uh, participating i hope it was constructive again deandre johnson another reminder renisha mcbride another reminder under conditions of white terrorism sobriety would be best uh, if you cannot do sobriety at minimum be codified uh, you certainly do not want to be behind the wheel of a vehicle. I would even exercise caution about being a passenger, even a pedestrian uh, race soldiers. They look for any excuse to make trouble for us. Man, a bar that is one of the worst possible decisions you can make as a victim of racism. Uh, just being in an environment around whites who are consuming alcohol, you're asking for trouble. Uh, and we did that whole program. White people can ruin your life in five minutes. There is yet another illustration with the DeAndre Johnson situation. Uh, that's definitely one you should be sharing with folks. Uh, if you're going to do your drinking and what have you, I would say get to one spot and stay there. Uh, in addition to not wanting to be around any white people, I would even be very cautious about the non-white people that you're going to be around because it's just too many occasions where we have unnecessary problems. And I mean, things that end up costing us a lot of money, a lot of time uh, that could be easily avoided uh, if we either we're just going to stay sober or at least we're going to be codified about who we're going to be around and the environment we're going to be in when we do our consuming of intoxicants. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of war. That being said, 
creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows, signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. This episode is made possible by PWC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.